One, two, hello, hello, one, two, hello. Thanks a lot for checking in. Hope you're well. Sorry, it's a bit late this month. Um, very late, actually. Two weeks late. Um, yeah, not sure why. Well, one of the reasons why is because I had this interview booked in um, to speak to Graham. And we've been talking about doing it for ages. And it was great, really great uh, afternoon. I was there for quite a, quite a while and we talked for quite a long time. Decided to make a decision to split the um, to split it into two pieces because um it's very long it's four hours 20 so uh kind of uh there's a little bit i didn't want to i've edited out a couple of little bits that were just wittering we were just wittering on between we had a bit of a break in the middle and then we came back and we were just talking about some stuff that wasn't really very relevant some i was just chatting about some things so i've kind of edited it into two halves so the, the first half you're going to get now and then the second half will come out next um, after New Year in the New Year. So, um, and I'm going away on Monday for quite a while. Well, wait, two and a half weeks ish or so. Yeah, I'm going to Kuwait on Monday, and then going to Oman for a holiday um, till the fifth. Well, going till the third and going back to Kuwait and then flying home on the fifth of January. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of a proper big Christmas holiday, really. Um, so yeah, I'm not gonna have any time to record anything anyway. So, and that'll be kind of back to normal droney podcasts from um, from February. Um, but yeah, so there's going to be a couple in sort of quicker succession, which um, which is which is great. And this was a great chat. We talked about all kinds of things. Very very interesting guy, um, and. It was uh, yeah something I've been wanting to do for a while because uh, there's various people in life who are who are hugely influential and um, and they kind of there are people that you reference back to a lot in in lots of different ways actually and Graham is one of those people and and also a guy called Graham Clark who I I met Graham Clark before I met Graham Massey actually but um, I met them both around a similar time when I was in my kind of early twenties. And uh, we get into talking about the early toolshed um, thing when I first heard them play together, um, which was a night called Toolshed, actually, at night and day. Um, and then that became like a band and, and, and carries on to this day to be a band, which which I'm no longer involved in, but I, I was for quite a few years. And and it was always an ambition of mine to work with, um, to work with Graham Massey because, um, for, for a number of reasons. And I, I had the pleasure of working with Graham Clark on a number of occasions doing uh, doing jazz projects and other, other sorts of things along the way. So me and um, kind of got to work with Graham uh, Clark in lots of different ways. But but Graham Massey, yeah, phenomenal musician, f uh, artist, uh, part of 808 State, of course. And they um, we talk a bit about him working with Bjork and and that experience, which was really fascinating. I was a bit obsessed with Bjork when I was kind of in my twenties. I thought she was a truly kind of inspirational artist and unique. Um, and we talked a lot about um, just that kind of uh, the history of Manchester, about Manchester music and uh, the fact that Manchester is. A very important music city in the world, not just in the UK but in the world. It's a it's a city that's produced some incredible music and artists, 
Um, and it's a real melting pot of different cultures, influences, and um, yeah, and 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 it, and it's celebrated. But but I, I feel, um, you know, it was a real, really, really buzzing city, eighties and nineties, etc. You know, because it was obviously the big the big Manchester thing and Manchester music and all that stuff. But but still to this day, actually, I, I still believe that it's that it should still be celebrated and still has an energy about it. I mean, I've lived, you know, I've lived in Manchester most of my life, really, and I'm very attached to Manchester, really, and my heart and soul really is is in this part of the world, you know. Um, and it's funny kind of coming to terms with that as someone that always imagined I would live abroad and live um, rurally, which I kind of do now a little bit. I still have this connection with Manchester. These, you know, these very... Uh, th that thing of having a buzz when you go into a city, uh, I still get that when I go into Manchester. Very strange, just just because of um, there's an energy about Manchester. You know, when I go and do gigs at Matt and Fred's and different things, and even when I go into Johnny Roadhouse and see my friends in there, Lee Mullen in there, and and uh, Johnny Junior and stuff. You know, when I, when I make that journey in, I always have a vibe about Manchester. Is a kind of excitement, especially about this sort of South Manchester thing, which is where I lived. And when when I knew Graham and was working with Graham a lot of that time was when I was living in Fallowfield and, and West Didsbury and Chalton and um, kind of Wally Range, Alexander Road South, and all all around those kind of kind of parts of Manchester. Um, all that kind of energies around that time, you know, very influential obviously on on me and my music and, and the music I was involved in so we talk a lot about that he's got an incredible a fo almost photographic memory encyclopedic memory for well you'll hear is mystifying amounts of things there's, there's stuff we talked about that I didn't know anything about obviously which was great so it's as informative for me as I hope it is for you listening um and yeah I learned so much about about kind of um his journey into into music and culture of Manchester and how he how he met me from the, the conversation about the cafe that he owned I never didn't know anything about it, which was kind of on Oldham Street you know and, and that around that area of Manchester Northern Quarter which has always been a, a really interesting melting pot where Matt and Fred's is now and uh, and uh, Affleck's Palace or those places always been uh, kind of central thing of, of, of culture and art and uh, kind of interesting oddball people that are kind of drawn to each other and uh, yeah so anyway so yeah sit back and, and really enjoy this it's in so it's going to be in two parts it's a bit of an odd ending because we have a we have an abrupt break and I've just kind of just decided that was the point to end it actually and then and then the, the part two will come yeah uh, first Sunday of January so which I think is the 7th of January so I'll be posting that then. So yeah, enjoy this. Graham Massey. I just have to watch if I laugh because my laugh's so loud. So they just uh... <laughs> laugh compressor. <laughs> laugh compressor, yeah. Well, there's laugh limiter. Yeah. We don't need that on, do we? On the thought. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be alright. So I have got some notes in my phone because there's yeah. so many things. I mean, the thing I was laughing this morning, I said, um, you know, it's taking us so long to get this together because I'm just because I'm useless, basically. I'm so disorganised. Yeah. And I've been talking about it on the podcast. I've not said who I'm interviewing. Yeah, all right. I've said I've been, there's somebody I want to really interview yeah. because we spent a lot of time, you know, playing music together. And, and I was always fascinated with the drum kind of side of um, 
the drum thing was always fascinating for me in that band, you know, yeah. the tool shed thing. And I was, so I was making some notes today and I was like, this is like five episodes, you know, because it's like, because um, it's all your, <laughs> all your other stuff. Yeah, but it'd be nice, like, I've done an, uh, did you listen to that Martin Ware podcast I did at all? Um, he's, he's like uh, in Heaven 17, he was in, he was in yeah, Human yeah. League. Well, I, I bumped into him at a festival and then we, we did, a few weeks later we it, we ended up doing this podcast. Cause when we, was that? Over the summer, I think. But he got quite a different one, a uh, different approach because he didn't know me at all. You know, oh, okay. You know, right, I don't think right. he knew any any of the history or yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. You know, just it was a blank, starting from a blank, and I found that really interesting because you have to then yeah, yeah. Um, paint a picture, you know, of, and you can sort of do it. And sometimes when I've done things like with sound on sound, like a podcast with them, which is always a technical, yeah, yeah um, geeky, sort of, geeky synthesizer-y yeah, kind of yeah, um, yeah, yeah. sound engineer-y thing mm. but I, I haven't done one that perhaps is more of a musical background thing that isn't totally techno so yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean so we'll, we'll probably end hopefully we'll end up with uh, like another uh, view through a different window <laughs> through the arched window <laughs> through the arched window that's right yeah. that was the round window yeah then we've had the square window I hope well I hope it's not the same as usual so so uh, yeah no no I'm sure I'm sure it'll be because it, it's um, I mean so the podcast is basically like I was saying we were just a quick chat before how it started was this kind of idea of archive you know yeah personal archive and um, and what what when when you die yeah. whatever you haven't shared is gone you know yeah whether that's important or not it doesn't really matter does it well it, it lives on through like oral history for mm. a while doesn't it like the Stories. previous generation to us and I think we probably touched on it before of like to be a musician when I was growing I'm I'm older than you you're oh. 10 years exactly older than me yeah. almost yeah you were so like you? Yeah, yeah growing up in the 1960s into the 70s that to be a musician was a rare and wonderful thing <laughs> in the neighbourhood you had so very few uh, well not even professional musicians but you had mm. musician if, if there was a musician in the neighbourhood it was like you know it's like being a wizard or something <laughs> you know it's like you know, <laughs> so elevated towards kids yeah, yeah. because music was so important in the neighbourhood you know it was like the, the era of records and recording and yeah. sharing music and yeah. And hi fives, you know. The top 40 and all that stuff. Yeah, it was like first generation where records were like a currency and you shared them in the neighbourhood. And um, it it glued the kids together in a way, you know. Yeah. yeah. uh, And and certain certain, uh, parents had good hi fives on the street (laughs) and may have (laughs) even some taste. (laughs) <laughs> yeah a lot of people had MFP records and I started off with MFP records right. and to explain that to the, the wider world it was yes. music for pleasure and they sold them in the supermarkets right. for 50 pence like Woolworths as well maybe? yeah Woolworths yeah and just generally that was a point of access for a lot of people 
And for instance, there'll be like Jimi Hendrix recordings that were recorded from the toilets in a club somewhere, you know, when he was like on the Chitlin circuit or something. Yeah, yeah. So you get a Jimi Hendrix record with, uh, uh, who, who, who did he play with? Somebody, somebody read, not, not Noel Redding, I'm thinking of a, you know, some, well, in, 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 a, in a band that was yeah, in a band pre his pre, stardom pre stardom pre yeah. and, all that. and you get records like that and you try and get into them the quality was a bit low or they do orchestral records and uh, great war movie themes was one of my early purchases <laughs> which, which actually you know does feed into some of my later music creations yeah, of yeah, um, yeah. the pomp the pompous kind of um, Marchy kind of yeah. Ron Goodwin, uh, yeah. We, that, it was a, all these different musics were were things that glued people together. I remember there was a, a um, one of the parents up the street. He had that Diodato record with the two thousand and one theme on. Also, Sprat Zarathustra or whatever, which was a number one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like a disco classic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and if you look on the sleeve notes of that, it's Billy Cobham on drums oh, and right. Ron Carter on bass. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, it's an amazing, is it CTI, right? Creed Taylor Yeah, Creed Taylor. Records. There was a joke, Creed Taylor reboot, yeah. didn't they? And a certain sound, that production. Yeah, was so every like time we went... Was it Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so every time we went round there, that was, we, oh, can, we, can we have that kind of thing? <laughs> Yeah, and and it had a sort of like sheen of sophistication in the sleeve and the the sound and yeah. sounded great on this seventies stereo, yeah. and he had uh, this album, Stevie Wonder presents Cyrita, which <laughs> right. is like Cyrita was Stevie Wonder's wife, so it's a whole Stevie Wonder album that was off the radar in a yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Mind you, there was a number, you know, a, a chart hit on that called Spinning and Spinning. Oh the, right! Yeah, okay. that was a hit in the seventies. Seventies, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this album is amazing. I've, 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 it's one of my favourite albums. But I, I, I got access to it through this guy's stereo down the street. Yeah. Anyway, there were there were uh, two, three musicians we knew in. I grew up in this place called Levin June in, in Manchester. It's yeah. like an Irish suburb. Yeah. I say it's Irish. It's everything, but. Yeah, it, it felt Irish at the time. Yeah, 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 And so there was this one musician that played at the British Legion, who was the dad of some of our mates. Right. He played the drums at the British Legion. Well, right. there was a drum kit in the hallway always, and it was like this magical thing yeah, of like yeah. the look of it, the sparkle, the the symbols and everything. Yeah. It was sort of like oh, real drum kit, and we. Yeah. It was a magical thing. And then there was this bass player who was the father of Graham Clark, who's a, mu- who's a musician. Oh, they'll talk about you and Graham. Yeah, yeah. we'll talk about talk that about a, bit, a bit more. But uh, his dad, Les, played, uh, was a upright bass player. Yeah. He mended double basses. He was like a luthier as well. That's right. Yeah. So you go around his house and it's like, you know, the hallway was like, you know, yeah, full yeah. of double basses and... And he'd been around the world. His whole house felt like the British Museum or something. It did, because Frank Grimes, <coughs> the bass player, he was from Sheffield, he lived in that house. 
because he rented it off Graham. The one oh, was later on. Yeah, the, is it, what, it's not Maldorf Road. I can't which road is it? <coughs> Albert Road. Albert Road, thank <coughs> you. That's the one, yeah. yeah. I lived around the corner from there for a while. And, does, and there was probably a whole set of like uh, Brian Odgers, who's uh, like a famous British bass player who yeah. played on the Extrapolation by John McLaughlin. He, he used to stay there for a bit. And, Did he? And, you know, Graham's got pictures of... Uh, Himself on Count Basie's knee and all this, you know, it's like, it, yeah, he's, um, wow, yeah, he, he was really kind of in the thick of Manchester nightlife in the probably in the 50s and 60s, yeah, and was a regular player at a place called Dino's Club, which is on Princess Street in Manchester, yeah, and that would be one of the all night. Uh, yeah, yeah. Bit chicken in the basket, but you know, yeah. night nightlife in Manchester, yeah. and he he used to tell us about the amount of casinos in Manchester where music was part of the night, and you know you would swap with other band members between the gigs in Manchester because there were so many. Yeah, it, Manchester yeah, yeah, yeah. was known as as almost a bit of a Las Vegas kind of thing in in a certain mm. point yeah, yeah. until. Uh, some police commissioner came and sort of cleaned it, all clean, up, yeah. cleaned it up. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, one of my uh, friends uh, who's Iranian, uh, they used to say, it's that, oh, Manchester, such a, you know, they were like into the, into the casino scene and then they always said like, oh, Manchester, it's like, you know, it's, it's the thing. Place. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It had a rep. And so, yeah, he was amazing. But then my, my first girlfriend's dad, who also lived in Levenshoek, yeah. well, Somerset, because he was a travelling musician, so he wasn't there a lot. Mm. He was called Ron McKay, and he was the drummer in Akabilk's band. Ron McKay? Yeah, he was like the primo New Orleans-style kind of trad jazz drummer, you know? Yeah. And he lived across the road. Yeah, <laughs> this is all news to me. Yeah, right? but one of the one of the things that I that's always tickled wow. me is that you know he actually gets a credit on "Stranger on the Shore," which was like a number one hit in America, wasn't yeah, it? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is commonly known as like you know one of the big instru British instrumentals. Yeah, yeah. And when we had Pacific State, which again is a sort of wind instrument instrumental hit kind of thing, Pacific State, that 808 State. Yeah. People used to say to me, it's like, oh, it's like Stranger on the Shore or something. You know, they, they, they had this comparison. Because it was like reference. Yeah, yeah. and it was like, well, we, yeah, we used to live at number, you know, whatever, and they used to live at number what's it across the street kind of thing. And it was like two, two mad <laughs> instrumental amazing. wind instrument hits yeah. on one street in Levenjoom over a period of like, you know, 30 odd years or whatever. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, well, it used yeah. to tickle me that. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually, you can see him play in a film called It's Trad Dad. It's Trad Dad. Yeah, it's like a 1950s oh, uh, film, all kind of shot in Soho of, of like the, the trad jazz scene and the, the early rock and roll scene, you know. Okay. Black and white kind of, uh, yeah, almost like a B movie kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's on YouTube and. Uh, yeah, he was later in uh, Max Colley's Rhythm Aces as well, which was a big uh, yeah, uh, uh, trap band that went through the 70s. And wow. 
Yeah, and, all, and you know, he, he used to have all the, you know, his, his snare drum out and stuff. And he used to, yeah, these, these figures yeah. were like, you know, monumental to me. I was like, yeah. oh, you can be a musician, you know. It's like, I didn't know any, you know, what there were these figures, you know. Yeah, the fact that that was like you say, and, was... and and like me talking about now, I don't, you know, how do you move that into uh, you know? No. I always talk about it, but if I stop talking about it, yeah, um, you know, these eras sort of, uh, yeah, there is a good jazz book about Manchester, isn't there? Who wrote that? You know, do you know the one I mean? Yes, I'm, well, I'm I'm a very I mean, books are quite a new thing to me in the last. It's another sort of funny thing that's happened in the last literally year and a half right. so I've started reading and I've never read before I've never read anything I've just never had any interest in books oh, right. I've just never had this kind of connection with I found it very hard to um, to open a book and stay focused right because it was not you got a bit of dyslexia right? well the, I mean, it's, it's a funny thing I had some counselling uh uh, a couple of years ago, um, within <laughs> within five minutes of the beginning of the very first session, I was describing some of the sort of issues mm. I was having or whatever, and the, the, this uh, lady said, "You not got ADHD," yeah. and I was like, "I don't know," you know. She was like, "It's very common for yeah." It, well, it's very common for music. I don't know any musicians that haven't got some yeah. kind of condition. It's yeah. what gravitates us to communicating in a different in a way, different isn't it? Way. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, finding ways to communicate. Yeah, which yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you know, it's like uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest in most bands I've ever been in. It feels, <laughs> you know, feels it's, like that vibe. It's a mini yeah. bus out. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> and working, and just that thing of you know, you. I mean, I, I was thinking, I was sort of reminiscing a bit this morning because I knew I was going to see you. Yeah. And we and it was sort of, there was a period where we saw a lot of each other, and then then I didn't see you for a long time. And yeah. Things in my life changed quite considerably after that point, and I was thinking about how. Um, how kind of carefree I used to be in my life. Just I used to just wander through life kind of almost obliviously. There yeah. was all this stuff going on around me, you know. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk about, this kind of thing of uh, of of the, the tool shed, the band thing, the the people that came through that band and how like it like how Manchester I mean John Thorne used to, when he was John Thorne was off his head a bit in that period when he was, you know, yeah. You remember John Thorne, it was like that. He's, when he was in Lamb. When he was in Lamb, yeah. yeah. I mean, they re got together, didn't they? And I think he had, I think he was a bit more kind of, you know, but he had a period, didn't he, John, where he, and he won't mind me saying this, yeah. because he was very open about it. He had a bit of a squiffy period where he was, and he thought that, he basically thought that Manchester was uh, was the new kind of Jerusalem. And he, and he, and he used to yeah. say it all the time, didn't he, on gigs and stuff. He used to announce his thing, say, yeah. this is the centre of the world of music, you know. And, <laughs> And, yeah, and it's not the first person to tune no. into that frequency. I know, I know, and that, and that was the feeling this morning. I was like, that, that I was kind of almost realizing, thinking, you know, I used to be in the middle of this thing, and I was oblivious because I was playing with so many people, doing so many different things. It was all very unfocused in a way. Yeah. I was playing all sorts of jazz things. I was playing drum and bass. I was doing, I was doing the tool shed thing. Yeah. I was playing function gigs and playing with all that kind of functional music and earning money and yeah. driving all over the place. I mean, my, my record, my record breaking day of driving was a gig, the, the, the third gig of the day was a gig we did in Brighton. Um, oh Christ, I remember that. Yeah, because yeah. like, the thing I remember about you, Dave, is like you, were, you didn't, 
you always went separately in your fast car. Kind That's, of thing. I was always you driving too fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And always, uh, it was yeah. before kind of just about on the edge of mobile phones and modern communication, wasn't it? You know. So uh, I was always like fretted about where Dave was in his yeah. in his uh, yeah whether he's been arrested. I, I forget what your car was at the time, but it could go like three times faster than our van anyway. So <laughs> you were always ahead of the game. <laughs> well, I was always in that day. I did a gig. I did a gig in uh, Manchester in the morning. And yeah. then I drove to Sheffield and I did this gig in the afternoon. Yeah. And we had the gig in Brighton. Brighton Art College. Yeah. yeah, it was 10 o'clock or something. Yeah. And then I drove home afterwards, you know. Yeah. And it was mental. And you'd all gone together in this van. But I was like, well, I've got these gigs and it's a bit of a sketch. Yeah, we all stayed at my father in law's in Lewis. Uh, Lewis that's yeah, right. yeah, so yeah, yeah. The, the rest of us were all sort of in sleeping bags on the floor <laughs> in, in uh, Lewis. But yeah, that was, yeah. A, that was a sweet gig, that. It was a. Uh, um, like an end of term thing. It was. I remember. Yeah, but the, but the thing I remember about a lot of it, which is quite sad, is it's a lot. It's a blur as well. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like just doing this and then doing that, and people remind me now. They say, "Oh, do you remember when I go?" Oh yeah, yeah. People say I've got a great memory, you know. Yeah. And I go, I'm not sure whether I have anymore because it feels like I've kind of lost touch with so many, so much stuff that was going on. And all these different kinds of music I was playing, and yeah. and, and and feeling kind of a bit sort of a bit detached from things at times, you know. But how we got into those situations was simply the geography of the northern quarter in Manchester. Right, right. In, in yeah. that, yeah. Um, you know, people. It's become like a. A promotional thing for Manchester now to go like oh the Northern Quarter is so kind of trendy and arty or That's whatever, yeah. but it was uh, when I well, you know it was quite a weird street that was full of old fashioned pubs. Yeah, the church. And the church. I, I can't rem- remember the names the, of them. Remember the Gulliver's king. was one. Yeah, uh, King or, or was it called King or next to Matt and Fred? King's Arms or something. I mean, and the, cas- the castle's the still castle, going sorry, strong. The castle. Yeah, the sorry. castle's still a really good pub and it's it really is. going strong. It's got a music vibe. Yeah, but yeah, well, there used yeah. to be these pubs and they were a bit like the sort of places you went to when you got out of strange ways. That's right. You know what I mean? There was yeah. always a celebration of somebody getting out well, of bridge. Getting out <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they were a bit Yates's Wine Lodge and it bit. was like, it was kind of a, yeah, yeah. you know, it was a dowdy street. <laughs> <laughs> of empty department stores and yeah. uh, uh, you know it used to be the main shopping street in Manchester in the early 60s or whatever and then it kind of yeah, really yeah. died and then that's when pe- places like Affleck's Palace yeah. and how I met got into 808 State was I had a cafe on that street uh, under a clothes shop uh, around a cafe you down there a cafe? Yeah. and it was opposite Eastern Block Records who start who were like these anarchists from Bolton that opened a market stall or selling records. Then they had a small stall in Affleck's Palace, low rent. They did quite well. They opened a shop front on the ground floor in Affleck's Palace, and yeah, yeah, and that became the record shop. You know, one of the prime record shops in Manchester. And I met them because they used to come in for their dinner and brews and stuff. And then it became, because I was playing all kinds of mad music in there, there was a sort of symbiosis of it. And John Peel used to come and hold like a sort of clinic. When he came up to Manchester, which was maybe at once every few months or whatever, Yeah. he'd 
hold it like a bit of a clinic in my cafe and people are bringing white labels and you know yeah, it, it, it get all the yeah they do all the record shops on Oldham Street and, right yeah yeah uh, and there was a buzz about Oldham Street but it was quite a minor section of it yeah and then by the yeah, yeah. sort of late 90s they built dry bar and yeah. that that really lifted everything. Yeah, Matt Fred's helped, uh, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, but it was called Collider. Was Collider, it? Yeah, and before. it was PJ Bell's, and it was Republica. Yeah, PJ Bell's but it's Republica. always had this jazz thing. When did the jazz thing start? When did it start with PJ Bell's? PJ, well, I mean, the, the thing that was funny, because I lived in London in 89, so when I was at music school, I was at Czechs, and I went to London, and they hated London, came back and lived in Glossop back with Mum and Dad for oh. a while. Sort of like a bit of a kind of barren period of my life, you know. Yeah, Gloss Gloss is about twenty miles, twelve miles, twelve miles, twelve miles. 12 miles yeah, there. but it feels like fifty. Yeah, <laughs> it's really raw. It's quite raw. It's raw, and I, and I, I yeah, yeah. And I love living. I mean, I live in the yeah. countryside now, and, I, yeah. and my dad. That's why my dad moved there because we were born in. I was born in Swinton, you know, and, right. and my my mom, my dad didn't want to stay there because he could see, but that was quite well read, and he was quite political, and he could see yeah. that things were going. You know, what I mean, did he do? You know? My dad worked for GM buses. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and then they then they went privatized. Thatcher privatized it in eighty seven, and then he uh, he took the redundancy, and then he went back. He went to Bolton Tech at the time actually, and did a degree in politics and American history. Yeah, and then my mum, she uh, had been a nurse before my brother was born in the late sixties, and she qualified. She had my brother. She had me. And then they just, she just worked in a load of crappy jobs trying to earn money for the family. My, my, my dad had two jobs, my mum had three, you know, yeah. it was that kind of existence. And when my dad took the redundancy and uh, he decided to go back and study, because he'd always wanted to study, he left school, he left school at 15 with no qualifications at all, you know. Yeah. But he always, he read and read and read. My brother always read, my mum always read. I was the oddball, you know, and then yeah. I was a drummer as well, which is even more weird, you know. But my, <laughs> my granddad, my mum's my dad, his brother was a drummer, jazz drummer, and yeah. his son was a jazz piano player, and his grandson was ja- is a jazz drummer, uh, who's yeah. still Andrew Bowler, who lives in Altrincham. He's my second cousin. So the, 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 the music thing was on that side of the family, but I was this weirdo mm. who was like, I was always asking for drum. I said, I want a drum at five, six, seven years old. And when I, went, when I was at school, you know, the first time I played the drums, I could play the drums. I knew I could play the drums. Wow. I just sat down and played the drums, and everyone was like, that reaction to well, I was this freak you know yeah. I was like well I've always heard it I just it's just right. drums I know he's listening to the top 40 and you sit behind the settee with the top of the stereo and pretend it was a piano and be miming along to the music yeah. you know even when like six or seven eight years old because on every Sunday night we listen to the top 40 as a family and my dad used to tape it yeah so we could listen back to anything that we liked you know and uh, <clears throat> so all that kind of blah 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 happened um, and then, so my dad went back to university and my mum, then she went back into nursing. She re-qualified and she worked at Thameside Hospital right. and she worked there till she died in 95. Yeah. And then after that, my dad never really, I just don't think he ever really got over that thing. You know, he never met anybody else. He, he, he yeah. just lived, my brother lived with him quite a while yeah. and he was quite an insular character, you know, and he liked to walk, he liked to run in the hills. He had one friend yeah. who he walked with 
yeah. guy called David who read at his funeral, you know. And then he lived in this. He ended up living in this kind of sheltered housing thing, which had loads of. And it was. And he became a lot happier. He suddenly was around people. It was a community. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. a community thing. It yeah. was like you have to be over fifty-five, and the flats were really nice. Yeah. And, um, we're selling one at the moment, actually. If anyone needs one, yeah, we're selling the flats. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got, we've got, our got, got one of those in Marple. Have you? Yeah. Oh, in Marple. Yeah, but my parents died uh, earlier in the year, oh, and right. uh, yeah, it's been on the yeah, right, it's been right. on the market for a bit. But. Yeah, ours in Leeds has been on for we've just accepted an offer. It's funny because, like you know, like. I, I'm almost in that age group where I would qualify to get in one of those places with the pole courts and the, and the coffee mornings and, and stuff. Yeah, but it's yeah. not our generation yeah. won't go for that kind of thing. What will our generation do? I don't know. You know, I don't know. Yeah. There needs to be a stylistic twist in these things. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but there's, all, I mean, there's also the music lifestyle thing, isn't it? It, yeah. it, it make you feel, I mean, I still feel like, I mean, Fiona, my partner's a musician, but she's looking forward to retiring and travelling. Yeah. And I'm like, what's that? Any of that what's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just going to be playing until yeah. I drop dead. I'm yeah. going to drop dead behind the drums. You know, that's the hope, you know, yeah. at least or close to it. You might be on the same cruise ship as your missus. Yeah. <laughs> In the band, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, so, so that was kind were, of... were your parents proud when you got into Chetons? Does Chetons mean anything to me? To me, it, it, it was this, like, you know, hallow again this hallowed turf yeah the, so the way let's explain what it is to people that like Chetons Music School yeah. has been there since when well the, the library is 14th century yeah. isn't it yeah and then it was a kind of a, cor- a chorister school it's connected to the, to the yeah it's connected to the cathedral which is next door in yeah Manchester. so they replied all uh, re- supplied choir boys to the Manchester Cathedral for centuries for a long long time yeah but it has this uh, you know longest it's like one of the longest established schools in Manchester's history isn't it it is yeah yeah yeah. but but when you went it would actually it did have a a jazz bent did it no No. so well when when I went to Cheetham's which was 85 yeah. Um, I mean, the whole story of that, which I've never really talked, I have talked a little bit on previous episodes about this, but the, yeah. there's a funny, funny story. Um, I, I, end, end, I wanted to play the drums, I got a drum kit. My, my dad, mum, dad bought me a snare drum. And then in the March, the, in 83, Tony Ramwell, who was in the brass band, who was a couple of years older than me, yeah. sold my dad uh, a George Heyman lovely gold Heyman kit you wow know? Yeah. yeah yeah I mean now I mean that mm. drum kit I was desperate to get rid of it because I wanted a premier kit yeah or oh, you always wanted a premier kit all Heyman were a bit old fashioned or something it was yeah. all a bit old fashioned yeah, yeah, but very cool sore after now yeah. but actually yeah. it would be anybody you know and it was a lovely drum kit and it was 20 it was 12 and 16 so the sizes were quite nice you know it wasn't mm. a 22 bass drum anyway my dad bought that kit but one of the kind of agreements was my mum wanted me to study properly. Mm. And unbeknownst to me, this is because of my granddad, because my grand his brother, they'd studied, you know, and it was all it was in the jazz thing was in their family. Oh really? And mm. my and my granddad's brother, that he had a big band in, in Swinton and he was a drummer and his son was a was a, was a piano player in the band and Andrew Ball now he's like my second cousin now same he's a little bit younger than me Andrew, he lives in Ultram. He's he's a he's a drummer and jazz. He yeah. plays a lot of shows and stuff and right. and he's got an amazing collection of vintage drums, Andrew. He's like unbelievable 
unbelievable story. He's got that's kind of his thing, really. Yeah. And his family, his wife, and that family is um, a vintage car thing as well, a vintage car insurance company and stuff. And they've got they sold that company. They've got quite a, you know quite a lot of nice cars, some old yeah. Porsches and things. And anyway, that's yeah. all the kind. Uh, yeah, but one of my brothers is a. Uh... Dabbled in all. Dabbled in, yeah. Yeah, it's got yeah, a garage, yeah. an interesting garage. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing, and, and it's good, you know, it's, it's somewhere good to put your money, you know, especially the it is, actually, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I still maintain vintage synthesizers as a better place to put them. <laughs> this, this was a, I mean, this was a whole, this was a whole other episode because I was thinking. At least to try and float that in the family. It's like, I, I really need, this is a really good investment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was listening to that, there's a, that Pat Metheny interview on, on uh, Rick Beato. I've watched it again last three days and he said in that he said when I he said when I left Gary Burton's band I had five thousand dollars he said I spent three thousand on a van yeah. he said I spent fifteen hundred pounds on this new thing called the Oberheim four boy four oh wow that was his was it that right. was his it wasn't Lyle Mays's right. yeah and he gave it to Lyle right the first one they bought which I think they always had that and he's yeah, you can see it in that um, Joni Mitchell gig that they both right. play, isn't it? Shadows and Light. Shadows and Light. There it is, yeah. the, fo- he plays the four voice. He? Yeah. He's got the piano and he's got the roads and he's got the four voice. What amazes me about all those uh, Pat Metheny band videos with an overhome four voice is it's always in tune. It's, that's never been tune. my experience. And, and, <laughs> and in the interview he says they watched Joe Zaronor struggling with it to get the oscillators in tune on when they were watching him playing live. Yeah, and, that, and this is the Lyle Mays thing. Such a polymath genius, you yeah. know. He'd obviously there was something in his thing where he knew how to do that. Yeah, just by probably, a probably, per- probably perfect by, pitch or something. Probably yeah. and the maths thing is just yeah. that maths genius. But it's yeah, funny because you've because you've got a four voice and an eight voice. Haven't you? Have you got no, I've got an eight voice. Yeah, that would be insane. <laughs> Um, I thought you had. I thought you had both actually. Uh, but yeah, one of the as, just as a footnote to yes, uh, Oberheim yeah. Four Voice while we're on it, yeah. is that Joe Zawinul's keyboard tech was this guy called Alan Howarth, and he did yeah, uh, yeah. loads of uh, soundtracks with John Carpenter. He so when you hear brilliant synth record of of forever kind of thing, Escape from New York and Halloween and all these uh, John Carpenter classics. It's Joe Zawinul's keyboard tech that was, uh, you know, doing all the ARP and all that kind of thing on those oh, kind yeah, of thing. Because he was, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, John Carpenter gets a lot of the credit for doing his own music, but, you know, Alan Howard should not be written out of history. Should not be written out of history, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, uh, really... you know, we used to have all those records. And, uh, like, you know, getting into synthesis, size music in the 70s there wasn't loads of choice but the no. carpenter records were really something they really made an impact yeah 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 anyway back to <laughs> well no so it's so yes and so so i went to um, my mum wanted me to study so mm. on our on the estate i grew up in in glossop simondley which was like quite a new build we moved to there in 70 late 71 early 72 i was just over one years old i don't remember it's about it my brother was yeah years old and me 18 months and um, and grew up on that housing estate and went to school the, the school was you know like five minutes walking it was a very it's a great it was on the edge of the peak district yeah, you know yeah, it was lovely, great yeah lovely spot really, really great place yeah. to grow up you know and I spent most of my weekends 
in the countryside. I mean, I've just bought a, a very nice air rifle. I've been wanting oh. to do shooting for yeah. a long time. I've just bought a really nice rifle. Yeah, I've been sort of looking, doing a lot of research. And because uh, I used to have Webley, the Webley pistol, you know, and I used to have the knives when I was like 10, you know. Yeah. I used to have a machete, all these bizarre things. Yeah, we, we had loads of sort of... Because it was all fine, you yeah, know. Yeah, like... <laughs> Army surplus, yeah, army surplus. My, stabby my, things. My yeah. mate Dan, Dan, what was his? He was born the same day as me. Yeah. Oh, Daniel Cook. He yeah. lived on a, a slightly rough estate, like the council estate, which was on not on the Simonley estate. Yeah. He was on the other side of Simonley Lane. There were some council houses, and now they're all they've all fortunes now. You know, yeah. but at the time there were council houses, and Daniel Cook was the army surplus. Right. And he had, and so we had all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And we had a tree we used to hide <coughs> in. Right, it was there was in the middle of yeah. nowhere, and you know. No, I, can, I remember go, you know going off to play football. You know, it's like jumpers for goalposts and all yeah. that. Well, you take your sheath knife off. That's it was right. in a holster, in holster, and everyone yeah. had a sheath knife. Everyone had them. Yeah, yeah. And and everyone like my brother had a, a gherkin, one of those curved gherkin knives on his bed, hung up on his bedroom yeah. wall. Yeah, yeah. And he used to sharpen it. And he used to think that was a bit odd <laughs> and a bit kind of I hope that don't fall. <laughs> that don't fall off. You know. What's he sharpen? And my mum was always a bit irritated by it. It's like, get yeah. off, you know. And it's like, uh, yeah. it, I, I think it was just a part of the culture back then, wasn't it? it to was, to yeah, uh, have yeah, a, yeah. Uh, you know, you so near growing up in the sixties, you forget how near it was to World War Two, and yeah, yeah. and uh, you know all the boys' comics really fed, uh, you know. World War Two into the mythology of uh, you correct. you bring it up you know everything yeah, was Action yeah. Man and all this kind yeah, of thing yeah, so yeah. it was uh, you know uh, everyone had uh, the what were those guns that fired peas like secadens or something and potato pistols and war pistols yeah so yeah air rifles were yeah. a bit expensive but were, if you were like Green Wellies and out in the country you probably had them. Yeah. Well, I got the, the pistol I got off a friend of mine, and uh, and then the other thing I had was this thing called a Black Widow um, catapult, extremely oh, wow. yeah. powerful, oh, and I got in trouble, I yeah. broke someone's window, my dad, I got absolutely, yeah, yeah. I didn't see that again. So. We had uh, homemade bows and arrows, sometimes made out of bamboo, bamboo, yeah, we used and to sometimes made out of PVC piping, which <coughs> are much more powerful. Oh, and then we used yeah. to get the ends of darts, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, the sort of unscrew a dart yeah. and stick them on those green garden sticks That's and right. then yeah. help them into, like, <laughs> into Just, sort of garage doors and bins yeah. and yeah. try and kill sparrows with them and things like that. It was boyhood in. It was boyhood stuff, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah but, yeah. you know, when I think about it now, it's just sort of horrific. It's crazy. <laughs> and the thing you talk about the war, so my brother is a bit older than me. My brother was really, my brother read a lot, even from a very young age, and the thing he was really, really obsessed with was yeah. my granddad, my dad's dad, who was a sergeant in ah, the right, yeah. war. So bits of uniform would appear, wouldn't they, in people's yeah. lives, you yeah, know, I remember yeah. pith helmets and all kinds of... Yeah. Yeah, ephemera from the war would yeah, be yeah, yeah. In, in people's lives, and it was quite odd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when my dad when my dad passed away, my brother we had to sort his stuff out, you know. Yeah. And my brother knew that my dad had some war memorabilia, shall we say, that my yeah. granddad. Cause my granddad went over Normandy 
he was he was all over the place during the war. He had, he had about 25, 26 men he had under him. He yeah. looked after. And he always, my auntie was a lot older than my dad. She was born before the war. My auntie said, oh, he always stayed in nice places because he was the boss. Mm-hmm. And they, he, like when he stayed in Groningen in, in, the, in the Netherlands, he stayed with a jeweller. And she used to write to the daughter. Yeah. So when I went on tour with Tom McRae, we went to Groningen. We did a gig right. there. And she, she said, well, you must go and look up this jeweller. And I was like, they're not going to be there now yeah. in 2010. You know? Well, they were. Uh, apparently, they still are because I met a guy at a conference. You know, it's like you're touring, you're driving a tour bus, you do yeah. a gig and you load up and you leave, don't you? And it was literally, Conigan was like that, which was a bit of a shame. But I did this, went to this conference a few years ago and there was a guy from that university and I was talking to him. It's um, Sorry, that's all right. Get it Just want. doing that thing with Dave, so we're recording. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I could have just, I could have just but yeah, yeah, he said that that jeweler still existed. This guy I uh, spoke to at this conference, right. yeah, he said, uh, oh, they do still exist. So I was a bit like, oh, I could have actually. And she was, she used to write to people when he, wherever he stayed, she used to write to people in that family. He was like pen friend. It obviously that took like, yeah. I mean, in the war as well, it would have taken. But I think after the war, she wrote to them as well. And, but he went all the way to Berlin. You see, in the uh, end. Right. And uh, yeah, we cleared out. We got this. Um, there was this suitcase which had a load of stuff in it, which my dad had stored. And in there was a few things that, yeah, a little bit, um, yeah, like yeah. SS um, badges and souvenirs, souvenirs, yeah. and a, yeah. and a, um, a flag, a flag, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. My brother's got all that stuff now, but it was yeah. kind of. But he, my brother was obsessed, really, with. No, maybe that's a too strong a word, but he was very interested in the whole, because everyone was terrified, weren't they? I mean, I remember when I was in my, te- you know, in my young years, there was two things. One, nuclear war was going to yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. And it was it would have been the same, you'd have had that same thing in that Cold, Cold War kind of. Cold War. Um, yeah. Uh, I didn't notice it as a kid. When, when I think about the 1960s, I ch- definitely tune in to the bright colours and nylon version yeah, yeah, of yeah. Um, the optimism and <coughs> the World Cup and, you know, mm. yeah. and uh, all the space race stuff, of course, that, that, that kind of, yeah, everything yeah, seemed to be heading in a direction that was kind of the future and optimistic. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. However, you know, the 70s, there was a big thing about green and common, wasn't That's there? Right. And there was a, yeah. a real... The, the Cold War thing almost kind of uh, came into my peripheral vision when it was early in my teens. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they used to show this this picture in Scout Huts, this uh, cinema thing. Uh, I forget what it was called, but it wasn't it wasn't the one set in Sheffield. That's Threads, yeah. That was yeah, it wasn't Threads. Wasn't it? Yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't Threads. It was War Games, was it? Was it the yeah, it could be War. Yeah, it, no, it wasn't even that one. It was an early black and white thing and it had been shown so many times that it was all pasted together with like, 
you know, the edits were all kind of yeah, weird because of the all forwards yeah, bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I joined Burnage CND at that, at that point when I was about, you know, 15 or something. Oh, right, yeah, uh, and then we used to leaflet people outside the co-op in Burnage every <laughs> every Saturday morning and, and show the go round showing this film. And, uh, oh, and right. go on marches. There was loads of marches in Manchester, um, you know. Yeah. CND uh, marches all ended up outside the law courts and um, and that that was a kind of uh, brought me into the counterculture a bit more Mm. but music made you aware of this counterculture because uh, my brother started getting into prog and stuff and you know that that world of music drew you into uh, the counterculture by going to see 50 pence gigs at the Free Trade Hall. Yeah, yeah. And that that was a whole game changer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'll just have to leave it. That's fine. I am just in the middle of a podcast thing. Just, all right, Kevin. Sorry. Yeah, so, so yeah, uh, at that point there were so many gigs going on in Manchester, and you could uh, we go like me and my school friend would uh, start going to gigs. You know, get dropped off by either his parents or mine, or yeah. go to uh, the Free Trade Hall. Mm. And uh, some of the first bands we saw were like Hawkwind. Oh, wow. I mean, that talk about game changer. You know, yeah. talk about you know that whole thing. I tied in with my interest in space and all that kind of thing yeah, all the album yeah. covers are all sci-fi and yeah, yeah. the note is so loud you know I don't think of experience it's uh, loudness is relative isn't it and I've probably been to louder gigs but at the time you know to have tinnitus for like three days afterwards was, was really like exciting you know yeah yeah sure yeah this is a good thing yeah, yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> you know of course they had Stacia and they had Lemmy and they had this amazing right, light yeah. show. <laughs> I remember in the <laughs> Hawkins light show, they had this thing where it was like a sort of little village and it grew into a sort of metropolis kind of bit by bit over the course of this track, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, actually, I always think about that now going into Manchester with all the skyscrapers, the skyscrapers kind of thing, because it just reminds me of that Barney Bubbles film of, of uh, yeah, that Hawkins yeah. used to have. And, um, yeah, that was a game changer. Doctor yeah. Do- Feelgood was the uh, support act. Oh, right. That was pretty pretty astounding as well. But then you go, we go and see Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. You know they yeah. had a weird support band called Griffin. who all played like crumb horns and bassoons. Griffin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, bloody and hell. recorders. It was like medie- medieval Bri- British medieval weird. music meets prog meets kind prog. of. But is it? <laughs> but it's. Yeah, uh, I still yeah. listen to some of that sometimes as well. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, it was quite rocking. And uh, then we would see another week. We'd see Santana. Yeah, and that would be the Apollo, would it? Was a lot of that with the Apollo? Uh, or? Yeah, no, that was at the Palace. Palace, the Ritz as well. The stuff at the Ritz. No, I never there. saw stuff at the Ritz. Never, never, no, it was a Palace. But you know, to see Santana at that point, that'd be. Yeah. S- the album was Borboletta. But you know, who was the support act? Earth, Wind, and Fire. And it's like, you don't want Earth, Wind and Fire as your sport act. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're going to get flattened. Yeah. You know? 
And, uh, you know, that, again, they had the right kind of uh, record covers with, like, you know, pyramids yeah. pyramids and spaceships and all That's that kind correct. of thing. Yeah, so yeah. we got into that, which was like a doorway into a different kind of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, their live show was something like, you know, real on a Las Vegas. They, they, they came on with flamethrowers <laughs> in the beginning. And, like, the drummer went upside, <laughs> upside down, down on a, on a yeah, fork yeah, with yeah. truck yeah, and yeah. bass players up on strings it was like you know way better than a pantomime yeah yeah yeah. and ironically that's what you don't see because i remember in the 80s the the palace was still putting on live yeah it was still putting on gigs and it all it's kind of changed now to it's more kind of yeah there's enough kind of shows knocking about to to uh fill that place now that's what that's why but i think it was like an era change at the in the 70s where those kind of variety shows that it lived off yeah uh were on the way out they were on the way out but the first time i went to the palace i went with my parents must have been early 64 65 morecambe and wise in aladdin that's that's but i remember the steepness of the seats and the opera glasses, you know, you yeah, put like yeah. sixpence in Terrible. and you got the opera, opera glasses yeah, and yeah. just that, that weird feeling of vertigo of like... like <laughs> yeah, I remember going yeah. to the opera house and watching and we actually were in the gods and it yeah. was just like, oh, Jesus yeah, Christ, yeah. this is like... They knew terrifying. how to cram them in, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like, should we really... Because the seats felt like they were almost vertical, didn't Funnily they? Funnily enough, that new Aviva <clears throat> place, that new theatre that they got at the... Um, Factory International Aviva place has that vertigo kind of Does steepness it? to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bit out, I don't know, I'm a bit out of touch with all that stuff. All yeah, it's, new... it's banked beyond 45 degrees, I think. Yeah, yeah which is not good. <laughs> Doesn't feel like it kind of, yeah, yeah. Just get the feet, the ears to jump. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because so you, you're sort of like 79, was it, when you kind of started the music kind of. Well, we started dabbling, you know, uh, I met a guy at school, Colin Seddon. He, he, he was in um, the school play. Uh, he had long, hair, long stringy hair and a star jumper, like a tank top star jumper and a yeah. Black Sabbath cross. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, oh, Black Sabbath. You know. yeah. Yeah, and he was like, <laughs> the first time I noticed he was in the school play and he had a fretless bass kind of thing. And he was, he was like, oh, this, he thinks he's Stanley Clark or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, he was, he was like yeah, way yeah. standing, to, you know, it's kind of uh, forward. It's like, you know, not in the orchestra pit, yeah, you know, foot on the monitor. This guy is, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So we, we got chatting and swapping albums and we yeah. bonded over the fact that we like gong. Okay. Because yeah. everyone had this gong album because it was 49 pence or something. It was like a special off the Virgin Records right. thing. Everyone had that one. Everyone had Faust tapes because that was another 49 pence record. Oh, right. Economics okay. were crucial. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a really yeah. good move by Virgin, that, because it got <clears> a load <throat> of people down, even down our street, there'd be five copies of those knocking about, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, every, yeah. everyone... Yeah, it was a thing. And into that. And it started. As well. Yeah, I mean, it's odd stuff. Yeah, it is. Weird yeah, time signatures, yeah, very psychedelic. Yeah. Jazzy, you know. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was when I first met Graham Clark, you know. Yeah. And he was just, I think he just <coughs> finished a stint 
because when you started tool show did he just finish the stint with we're gone yeah, yeah. well yeah. funny enough yeah so this this band we started when we were still at school yeah just did gong Jeez, oh. that was our thing. <laughs> was your thing. We're gathering together in a cellar in Burbage yeah, and yeah, we're doing yeah. gong, you know, and that was it. And was Graham involved in yeah. that? Yeah, Graham yeah, was. Yeah. I've seen the. I've seen that. Is there a famous picture of you in the? Yeah, in his back garden. Yeah, it was for something like the South Manchester Reporter when we did our first gig. That's right. And yeah, our I first gig was uh, <laughs> Queen's Jubilee Day. We did three gigs. We did three street parties. Seventy-seven. Yeah, we yeah, did yeah. Burnage Congregational Hall. <laughs> Uh, something like uh, some street party in Levenjum or near yeah. Audley Road and then we played a garage somebody's garage in Didsbury <laughs> in one day but the thing is it's like we didn't really com- well we compromised a little bit we did um, to keep the grannies involved we did Rock Around the Clock oh, okay. and All Right Now All right. or whatever yeah. you know we did a couple of the crowd pleasers and yeah. the, but the rest was like you know the, the Isle of Everywhere and things in like you know multiple time signatures and like. Were you playing guitar? Though? No, I was playing electric violin, which is weird because Graham is known for yeah, electric he playing, violin. He was playing guitar. Though, yeah, he had an electric violin at that point, uh, but he was more interested in playing the guitar. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> this makes yeah okay. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and all, also right. also in that band was uh, Alan Hempsall. Yes, and he was the singer. And in that photo of us playing in the street, is yeah. Alan. He's wearing his uh, cowboy boots, a dressing gown, and it's got a banana around his neck or something. Yeah, uh, and somebody reminded me the other day that he actually sort of did the first. Uh, gig of the morning in full scuba gear with flippers and snorkel and everything. But that was a, that was a gong vibe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mega. Yeah, so yeah. and later on he became the Chris, uh, Chris uh, he started this band Crispy Ambulance. Crispy Ambulance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I actually yeah. for the first few gigs I'd played the electric violin in that band as well. Oh did you? Right. Yeah, but they went on to be on Factory Records on Factory, and produced yeah. by Martin Hannett and yeah. uh, and the are uh, immortalised in the Joy Division film Control when there's uh, Ian, when Ian Curtis gets ill and uh, there's there's a um, they, they panic because it's still halfway through a gig yeah, yeah. and it's like get Alan from Crispy Ambulance and, and this guy comes on and the whole place erupts into a riot and like chairs are being thrown and it's like <laughs> I haven't seen that film for a long while right yeah well, notice the bit where it's like yeah. go get Alan from Crispy Ambulance yeah. <laughs> so uh, but I mean they, they were a really good band we had two really good bands in this cellar yeah yeah. Later. yeah. Uh, once we'd finished with the gong thing which was like you know like our first steps into music really you know yeah, yeah, and we yeah. played lots of community centres around Levenger we rarely got out of <clears> Levenger yeah. Well, what, but we did hire the Lesser Free Trade Hall because Alan went to that Sex Pistols gig uh-huh. and he was like, oh, you can hire the Lesser Free Trade Hall for 25 quid, you know, or, or something like that, you know, 50 quid or something. And promoting yourself and doing uh, Yeah, but it was these two older lads that we used to go around and, uh, and breathe their spiritual sky, you know, yes. in Didsbury, you know, they were a little bit older and yeah. uh, yeah. they were like, uh, somebody had got some insurance money from a motorbike accident. It was like, oh, I'll put gig on. So we, we put this <laughs> gig on. And uh, Colin's dad, where we Brilliant. used to rehearse, he was the folk columnist of the Manchester Evening News. 
so he was all up in inside the music and everything you know yeah he used to get records sent all the time he got some great records sent like uh i remember getting don juan's reckless daughter you know and he was like oh yeah take that away kind of thing you know and um joni mitchell and ecm albums yeah. abe yeah. hard Weber, things um so yeah he was uh, important in our musical world because he was uh he he could connect us with a few things one of which was track to music and uh so we did this free trade all thing we did it twice actually and we got really good numbers in because then we just knew enough people we put posters yeah. up in on the eighth day in all these places we really worked it right and what, what it, year was this then this was kind of yeah 78 78 okay even 77 maybe i don't know yeah 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 and uh it, it felt like whoa you know diy it was good you know and uh loads of people i keep bumping into people and say they're at that gig you know it's like it, it felt uh, kind of important yeah, and from yeah. that we got on uh, through colin's dad's connections we got on at Deeply Vale Festival in 1978, uh, which was this amazing gathering of the countercultures in the Northwest. It was in right. a valley near Rochdale, and they set up a stage with, uh, you know, like this ramshackle PA system. Yeah. A guy called Chris Hewitt, who now has a PA system museum. He's got the he's, you know he's got the original Pink Floyd live at Pompeii system and the David Bowie spiders from Mars system and it's like you can hire this shit for well uh, that Sex Pistols movie hired some stuff for uh, yeah for that you know for, it's become yeah. like a film. So where's he then? Is he somewhere out near Rochdale? Yeah, Is it? yeah. <laughs> Just that's amazing. Yeah, because we've done some reunions of that festival because it was right. culturally very important, you know. So yeah, at that sure, festival yeah. there'd be like a new wave day, so like the fall were on and yeah. Um, yeah, all yeah. these sort of northwest sort of proto punk things, yeah. uh, reggae bands, uh, hippie bands. Here, here and now were a off gong offshoot that we fell in with. We used to go and break, you know, break. I say break into their dressing rooms they used to invite you in because it was a hippie vibe yeah and we all hung out with them and we did this sort of uh spontaneous band called danny and the dressmakers which was like a sort of, we was responding to the punk energy at the time yeah, yeah. so what we'd do on on a bank holiday monday or so it'd be like uh, get all your mates in the cellar there was no tunes uh we it's not like we we're doing cover versions or anything yeah we just had a C90 cassette and the aim was to fill a C90 cassette <laughs> and with and everyone played the instrument they couldn't play you know <laughs> you know what I mean he yeah, said like yeah. if you can't play the drums you're the drummer, you're the drummer. If you can't, you know? and it was like this you know just this noise fest yeah. and it was just about making enough noise to fill a C90 but it was it's, it was it's kind of very formative to me this idea that the punk energy thing of like, you know, no three chords. We didn't even know one chord, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. well, we sort of did because we had that sort of gong training, yeah, but it was like a rebellious yeah. kind of act of like sheer horror noise kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so every time uh, Here and Now came to town, they would go, like, oh, they're here kind of thing. Do you want to do, do 20 minutes? No, do 15 minutes, you know, and we'd go on and we'd do, just you know, we'd just yeah, be just horrendous. And the cr <laughs> but that crowd were like really egging us on and going, yeah, 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 yeah you know. The vibe of it, yeah. 
so we yeah, did that yeah. and then we went on tour with them they had a they had this old bus uh, like a you know some old coach that was uh, every this band lived on and they just went around the country doing free festivals and all yeah, this kind yeah. of thing but at that point the, the the bus had broken down so they got a converted ambulance like a london ambulance kind of thing yeah, yeah. and i reckon there was like something like eight of us in this bus and a newborn baby and a dog <laughs> we went around the country <laughs> And, and it was literally sort of organised the gig the day before in some upstairs room in a pub in Birmingham or something, and then yeah. pass the hat round or whatever. Pass the hat. And then we'd play uh, some skate park in Westbourne Grove or, or, uh, or, you know, all them places that used to be on the tour map, like um, Aylesbury and kind yeah, of... Yeah. They, they had a circuit, and we'd Canterbury yes. Art College and... Uh, and it, that was a brilliant experience when you were like, you know, 18 or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. Horrific as well, you know, because it was yeah. like hand-to-mouth kind of thing. It was like, oh, right, this, this, oh, oh right, kind of thing. And they, they had a squat which uh, in uh, near um, Portobello Market and that, that kind of area. Oh, right, okay. So it became a bit of a base for us when we were like teenagers to go down there and do a bit of this and that, you know. Right. Or say we were cutting a record, uh, you know, getting a record mastered. We'd go and stay at theirs while we did it. And yeah, yeah. Rough Trade was near there. Oh, and okay. Yeah, yeah of course. And yeah. Uh, we sold these tapes through uh, a place called Better Badges, which was part of Rough Trade. So you could, you could swap tapes in the back of Sounds and Enemy. And we used to make these little albums like... Um, there was that group and I had another thing called Beach Surgeon and and that was like a solo thing and it came through like oh we need a spot Beach Surgeon yeah right. say Crispy Ambulance had a gig at you know Cypress Tavern or the Millstone pub or something it's like oh you come and do the support kind of thing and you take well, would you take a load of like a just load well of I don't know how I did it back there like, some of it was on cassette like backing on cassette oh, like I did oh, I've got a recording of me and the Millstone and it's like the back to that war movie thing it was the theme from 633 Squadron played off a cassette <laughs> <laughs> while I played along on, play. on the guitar with an echo box kind of thing it's like <laughs> That was one tune. Wow. Uh, but it was like some sort of weird ambient stuff yeah, as well. Because like, yeah, yeah. I was listening to ECM records and I tried to make stuff that had that kind yeah. of thing that was like that. And some of it was a bit comedy. or and, yeah, But yeah. Uh, there's some stuff on Spotify now that I dug out for some DIY compilation. Um, oh, right. You should send me some yeah, links on the beach surgeon kind of thing. Because we started uh, yeah. that project, we started a friend of mine called Dave Prescott. We started, he okay. had some synth stuff and a drum machines. So we were dabbling with uh, right. sequence stuff quite early on in the 80s, actually. With, yeah, yeah, there's a yeah. track called Chicken Skin Planet that, that was my best selling tape at the time. Probably oh. did more than 20. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's distribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wow, 20. And, uh, but you know, you used to just make sort of daft tapes in your bed sit and, and, yeah. and then, or sometimes it would go around to Graham's house, uh, Graham Clark's house, it was like a few doors up, and yeah. 
we'd do a recording with double bass and he had an upright piano with all instruments in yeah. the house yeah and yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah of course oh yeah. we'd do jams in the cellar in Burnage and uh, yeah it was really innocent you know yeah. now that's what I like about them now yeah um, yeah that feeling of yeah yeah there's just sort of like they're like kids drawings or something you know yeah. And, yeah. and it had a it had a vibe you know so uh, yeah that was really kind of formative stuff uh, when we first got into music but then once we turned into we met these older lads weirdly we put an advert in a news agents in um, uh, Levenjume and I think maybe uh, an advert in Virgin Records used to have a notice board and a lot of people got into bands off a notice board in Virgin yeah. Records mine was the loot advert in the Manchester yeah that's a similar thing that's yeah. how I met most of the people I still know yeah. for an advert when I moved, when I moved back to with those yeah. things where you, you have like a strip of things and you pull one off, get that, yeah, yeah, yeah. The phone number on there yeah. and, and the and the one in the one in the man. He was in Loot on Evening News. Was this guy Wayne Edwards and Dave Bailey had this band called Debris, you know, and I ended yeah. up in that band by answering. And it's a weird, very similar to what I mean. I I used to have a I used to have a sharp cassette thing that had a double. It had two cassettes. Oh yeah, yeah. And you could overdub with a mic. Yeah. So you could record that kind of technology and, and yeah, could, yeah. and I was doing multi-tracking so I was doing like 19 things on top of each other yeah. I used to have a guitar and I used to write these weird four part harmony things and try and record them all they're all slightly out of time and these yeah. more and more degraded yeah that, that, that's the real quality of them yeah. things. it's, it's great you're just trying to find a way to make music aren't you G- Gary from Crispy Ambulance he made this little mixing desk and it was in a, made into a sh- like one of those shortbread tins with the sort of tartan on them and, yeah. the, and a picture of yeah. Scotland, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And he'd made this little mixing desk where we fed one cassette player in and another, wow. and you could record and recorded it to another. Yeah. And uh, yeah. the, the noise level just got really ridiculous, kind of thing. The hiss, yeah, you yeah. got more and more. And you used to get that kind of, when yeah. you turn the thing on, you get this, at the end, this yeah. enormous hiss would suddenly appear when you just, before you press the stop, you know? So uh, we put this advert yes. and, and, we, and, and we said like a uh, saxophone player needed for gong slash magma kind of thing. Magma? Yeah. And so we, yeah, amazing drummer. Yeah. I know, you, you introduced me to Christian Van yeah. I always remember that video you lent me in. Very funny. So, so we got we got uh, the saxophone turned up turned to be this guy Howard Wormsley who who I still do stuff with now yeah, and, and yeah, you know he's right. he's yeah, an yeah. amazing documentary filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he turned yeah. up and he actually lived you know four streets away or something you know yeah. he lived within half a mile of where we were, and he was in a band called Iron Lung, and 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 with with Iron Lung came this this amazing frontman. Uh, and he wasn't a singer, he was just like a writer. He'd gone to Manchester University and one of his uh, dissertation was on like William Burroughs. Oh, right. So he was coming from that thing yeah, yeah, of yeah. cut-ups and kind of yeah. uh, creative writing. And he was like the front man, but he, he wasn't singing, it was just delivery, you know, of yeah. text. And yeah, it was yeah. like almost pre-rap kind of... Yeah, yeah. There's a guy living in London called Nick Staines, and he was he was he took a lot of drugs. Nick. Yeah. He wanted to try everything, but he was into 
Burroughs, um, Henry Rollins and David Lynch and I didn't know oh, any right. of those people yeah. were and he was very influential on me just that I mean the Rollins thing Black Flag and I was really obsessed with that band for a while oh, wow. it was yeah. unbelievable I just thought because they were all jazz musicians weren't they in the band no way yeah but they all played like absolute yeah. monsters yeah. and then he had like Search and Destroy tattooed across his back then he Rollins and, yeah. and I was like when I was in London and the David Lynch thing I found the William Burroughs thing I was a bit too heavy for me yeah. I found it it was a bit kind of I mean I was quite fragile mentally at the time yeah. so it wasn't a great I mean, yeah, he, he, was, he was trying all kinds of acid. best leave that in the box yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah but he was going there you know but it was similar kind of yeah well Ken he, this guy was Ken Hollins Ken uh, he's Hollins. now uh, he, he's got loads of books published of, it, of his uh he teaches at Central St. Martin's and the RCA and you know he's like he's he's done the thing that he set out to do you know yeah uh, real genius I think you know yeah yeah, uh, and uh, so he, he yeah we had this weird band and like the drummer was really into reggae uh, so oh, right. so with that? Eddie Sherwood Eddie Sherwood and he ended right. up in Innocence Percussion which sense. was a band yeah. that Colin Seddon started, actually. Colin, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Colin got obsessively into samba and that. He went and That's joined right. a samba school in Brazil. He did, yeah. And then he wrote a book on it. Yeah, and then yeah. he, he, they were outside Marks and Spencers in Manchester Every for weekend. years, weren't they? They were in that yeah, institution. Yeah. And... Um, that was before every village in England had a samba band, you know. That's correct, but yeah. isn't it weird yeah. how... Almost, you could go anywhere in England yeah. and there'd be a samba band. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, they use them in protests and they use them in all kinds of social situations. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's obligatory now. You know, it, it, <laughs> it, I just yeah. guess some really weird thing. But yeah. when Colin did it, there was the London School of Samba. Yeah. And there was, uh, in yeah, a sense, percussion. That's right. Yeah, and I, I really, well, somebody might want to do the research on that because there may have been more. But, mm. but to me, it seemed that way. Yeah, well, it's, but it's back to that thing again about the Manchester, this centre of all this kind of melting pot of different things. Yeah. Like I was saying before about, I was kind of oblivious to it because I was just kind of floating along, playing the drums yeah. and playing with different people. And I remember when the Corner House first started in Manchester, they gave us a, Great a, a yeah. two floors of the Corner House where we did a three-day uh, kind of workshop type thing. Yeah. I was playing record decks with like not not record decks like S SL twelve hundreds, you know what I mean? Like, you know, your mum's abstract yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. But you yeah. put sellotape on the arms and we're just playing these loops and then all in a sense because we're like playing along to these loops and then we'd have all this sort of metal framework stuff. I think we're inspired by uh well, I try to remember this London thing we'd seen at the RNCM. Um real famous um something gamel urban gamelan thing you know oh okay and yeah, we'd yeah. been to see that and it was like oh let's do that That's, kind of thing that you know kind of vibe, yeah. yeah so let's sell a tape on the record deck so it kept the so it would keep well that was the thing that we did any anyway kind of thing so you made loops before we had loopers we didn't have loopers and things like that we used to make tape loops on cassettes and yeah, did the tape messages loop thing because you could yeah you could yeah that was part of the culture and we had like records by people like Boyd Rice and right. uh, you know John Cage stuff uh, Ken was always 
coming at us with really interesting cassettes because he lived in London and we lived in Manchester. So we had the sort of London connection. Well, he worked for a publisher called Marion Boyers, who did all the John Cage books. Oh. And, you know, it's like a really sort of knowledgeable guy, you know, it's like, you know, for us kids, it was like art ensemble and, yeah. you know, he'd make these tapes and it was like, wow, it's amazing, you know, it's like, they're like these Scott postcards Scott. from London coming, yeah. coming yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he turned us on to a lot of stuff, but Colin said that um, he worked in Virgin Records because his auntie was the manager and he had a Saturday job when he was a teenager and he kept that up. So the stuff that he was coming back home with, you know, during the post-punk thing, you know, of like, you know, was just insane, you know, like those yeah. Sunra bootlegs. Uh, they had a whole section in Virgin Megastore of Sunra bootlegs, you know, the handmade, painted. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I mean, my, my, one of my early memories in the Piccadilly thing was the Yanks record. Oh, the yeah, record yeah. Because yeah. I bought all my Buddy Rich albums because they, they were all original things and yeah. I used to go down with three so, quid. And yeah, with the corners cut off kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. All, all the Europa jazz bootlegs from Italy, they yeah. were all just basically stuff that was stolen off other albums. And Again, that's why we all had the common connection with Sun Ra in, in Biting Tongues. You know, we had, we had a real Sun Ra flavour in Biting Tongues yeah, because yeah. we all had the Impulse albums with the corners cut off corners for like, you know, 50p or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so when they actually came to uh, Royal Northern College of Music in 81, I think, 81, 82, and it's like, fuck, oh, they're coming. You know, it's like, it's like they're literally waiting for a flying saucer. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're coming it's, from outer space. It's going from outer space. It's going to be there. This is it. Yeah. And I was expecting, it was like, oh, maybe there'll be oh, you know, 50 people there or whatever. But it was rammed. And it's like that, oh. It was always like, oh, you, you know, everyone's into this. You everyone's into Yeah, people, people have come yeah. far and wide yeah, for this yeah, event. Yeah, it yeah. felt like an event. And it was like a three-hour gig. Wow. I've taped. I taped it on me um, recording Walkman at the time, you know, and and, and it was such an epiphany because they did, uh, you know, night Fletcher Henderson music, you know, that kind of stomp music, and then they go into a free-form kind of electronic wind instrument freak out and then they go into some of their sort of Egyptian kind of marches and yeah, yeah. it just went everywhere. You know, and it was just sort of, uh, it was so mind-blowing, you know, as yeah, a gig. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we also went to see him in Sheffield uh, about a year, possibly a year later or something. But, right. yeah, this this stuff was like, you know, that that is, still inspires me now, that, yeah, that, yeah. that one event, you know. Are you, were you playing sax and stuff by that point then? No. no. Well, yeah, in a way. I I got a clarinet for, you know, when I was uh, in my bed sit kind of thing. Right. And I remember the guy in the next bed sit threatening to ram it up my kill, arse. Kill it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the misery stick, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the gloom tube. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the gloom tube. Funny, I was playing it the other night, uh, you know, a couple of nights ago, we were, yeah. we were doing, doing the gig. And I've got like a bug on it now, so it's a real weapon. You know, you put it through the amp. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like ultra doom. You know, wow. uh, but yeah. So in biting tongues, yeah, you just played anything. Again, it was yeah. like that freedom. It's like I played 
in post-punk, it was obligatory that somebody played shit trumpet. Right, okay. Do you know what I mean? You go, you've got certain ratio, uh, 23 Skidoo, uh, yeah. Crispy Ambulance, you know. Yeah. They, they, they all had bleating. Oh, Throbbing Gristle, that was another one. Throbbing Gristle, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, where, yeah. Where you yeah. play bleating trumpet through an echo box. It was then, like, mandatory. So I, that was my job. Was I did a bit job. of that. Yeah, yeah. Was but that it, you met Phil as well, Kirby? Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, after, after a bit, Simply Red, right, that's right. nicked that's, our drummer. That's right. He went yeah. and did that, and yeah. then he got fired, didn't he, after that as well? He got he? fired for being too ugly by Mick Hucknall, yeah. which is something he never got over. <laughs> I mean, there's nowhere to be given or end with that, is there? <laughs> and they nearly nicked our bass player. I know our, uh, Colin ended up doing a few yeah. kind of. Silver so played guitar, he a great bass player. All oh, right. And he, he didn't play bass in that band, right. he played guitar, and he got, right. he got fired. But the, 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 the rhythm section they ended up with, with all the success, yeah. used to be in this band in Disbury called the Mothmen. Okay. Ah, right. So Tony Bowers on bass. Tony Bowers. And Chris, Chris Joyce yeah. uh, on drums. And they were in this amazing kind of psychedelic um, band called The Mothmen. And, and uh, they, they had some records on Rabid Records. They're on Spotify and put a link to them. But they had this uh, guitarist called Dave Robotham who was, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was murdered. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and weirdly that. enough, I did a sound, about five years ago, I did a soundtrack to a movie called Cowboy Dave, which was based on Dave's story kind of thing. And and it won Best Short BAFTA, Best BAFTA, uh, a BAFTA for Best Short Film. Um, oh, right, that's quite recent, is it? Yeah, Bruce Mitchell's in it. Oh, right, <laughs> bloody hell. And uh, yeah, so all these sort of weird myths and legends all, yeah, all yeah. interlinking, in, especially around Didsbury, yeah, yeah, which was like a hotbed of music in Manchester. Cause you lived in Didsbury, didn't you? For a while? I lived in Fallowfield, yeah. Uh, I lived on Brook Road for yeah. quite a long time when, when yeah, when I, when, when I met you. Well, I mean, so yeah, the thing that, um, the thing I was thinking about this morning and the thing I always remember, and this is one that was very influential on me. I remember going to Night and Day and it would have been before I moved to Sweden. When I come back, when I was first getting into the Manchester scene, so mm. the, the PJ Bells thing eluded me, it just closed oh, right. and gone in, and Phil, um, was it uh, Phil Bell who owned it? Yeah, yeah. Phil turned it into another club called Republica, which was a diluted, it was never the same vibe. Right, yeah. But all these great players like Milo Fell and Frank Grime, all these Manchester Mike Outram, all these kind of Manchester legends, yeah. uh, Roy Powell and people, all played in PGA Bells. But because I'd moved back from from London in '91 and was a bit depressed and a bit and living out in Glossop, yeah. wasn't connected to anything. I ended up in this band called Debris, which had a guy, great keyboard player called Dave Baldwin. Pete Hughes is still one of my best friends now. Uh, Neil Fairclough, who plays in Queen now, you know, the bass player. No way. He's, he's, he's John Deacon these he's days. Been doing, he's been <laughs> doing Queen. Well, he played with Brian for quite a while, then he got into Queen. Yeah, right. Yeah, so he's, he tours all over the world with them now. And he lives in West Orton, you know. But right. he's, a, he's an amazing singer, Neil, and he's an amazing uh, bass player, and he's very funny. Yeah. I mean, he, he could be a stand-up, you know, yeah. he's one of those. Like Richard Hammond, another friend of mine, he's, his dad was a comedian on The Comedians. He was a ventriloquist. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, yeah, Grandad was the character, and Richard Hammond's one of the funniest, not the bass player that's funny, you know, yeah. just this kind of humour, dry humour, quick observational humour, you know. Yeah. But that in that band, yeah, Simon Bentle, who did, um, what was that, Key the Secret, what was that band, who did that, that big hit, I got the key, I got the secret. He, he ended yeah. up in that band there right. in like the 90s, kind of. Yeah. Um, there's a guy called Dave Bailey, a great singer, Andy Ross, who's a great sax player who lives in London now, yeah. and his partner is um, is the the female vocal in, in Matt Bianco now. Oh, and I dep with Matt Bianco. It's this weird. Oh, you're only Matt Bianco. I, I dep in that band. <laughs> Sebastian Decron's the drummer, right. but I did I did Menorca uh, this big jazz a few weeks ago, right. and I, I just dep. I'm just one of the you know. But it's mm. like a funny connection because Andy Ross's partner, Elizabeth Troy. Is her kind of one of her sort of professional names, you yeah. know? Um, she does the basher, you know, like half a minute, um, yeah. that big hit they had, which is the female vocal. Yeah. She does that, and she said to me, "Oh, you know Andy Ross, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah, well, he's my partner." Yeah. I was like, "Bloody hell, this is from that period in like '92." And Andy moved to London, and I was getting kind of in, back into the scene. I joined this band with Dave Baldwin, with Huey Thomas. Do you remember Huey, the guitarist? I know the name. Yeah, he used yeah. to play in Night and Day a lot. Yeah, but I used to go to Night and Day to watch music, mm. and I met Graham Clark. Oh yeah, yeah. And I used to sit and talk. Graham, remember him talking about symmetrical scales, and, the, and there's no yeah. such thing as the fourth. It's all the sharp four. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was fast. This guy was so fascinating. He'd done yeah. psychology, Graham, hadn't he? And yeah, I yeah. Think he studied. And Honestly, he... he's he's just written his kind of memoirs, kind of thing. Has he? Yeah, and uh, uh, <laughs> he's, that's... it's amazing. And he writes so well, and yeah. it's and it's. It, I really wish it. I'm really hoping it comes out because it, it it's kind of it's again just this amazing story of. Uh, just the way he thinks, and, and yeah, you know, he's a very so. unique musician, yeah, and he doesn't yeah. think like any other musician. Uh, but um, it, it's more than that. It's it's kind of like he's looking at music from a psycho- psychological. That's pop- what it felt to me yeah. when I met him. He yeah, he lonely. thinks a lot. He's he's a real thinker. Yeah. Yeah, but he's, but he's very, he's not dry, he's not, he's expressive, isn't he, with his, yeah. you get him talking and it's like, I remember I was like 22 or something and I was a bit yeah. depressed and I was like, oh, this this guy sounds, he sounds grounded and completely mad, Yeah, which was quite inspiring, you know, because it's like, oh, you can be out there, but still feel like you've got two feet on the ground, you know, like it's based on something. I felt like Yeah, but I think a lot of that came from his, uh, you know, his background with his dad being a musician and yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And his dad was such a big character. And yeah, uh, and yet Graham could match him in a different way, you know, they were <laughs> completely different characters. And his, yeah, mom, yeah. his mum was a big character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't know how to put it into words really other than the fact that this memoir is a very valuable document of Absolutely. of my times as well you know yeah, of yeah, like yeah. the, the yeah. thing we grew up in and how um, the different changes in the cultures and mm. I mean he mm. took a different path to me um, yeah sure yeah, yeah but yeah. we've always crisscrossed o- yeah. over the years kind of thing yeah, yeah. and well, it, was uh, it was amazing that he fulfilled his ambition to be in Gong and he was like you know yeah. 
they used to tour around the country all the time, all around Europe and America and stuff. But occasionally, when they came to Manchester, we'd like uh, have a weekend with like the the sax player might stay at, at Graham's dad's house or whatever, and we'd, I mean, Didier Malherbe or whatever. He's a, this amazing French saxophone player. People that know Gong will know his importance, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, but, sure, yeah. Or. Yeah. Um, one time uh, he said oh can you put David Allen up who's like yeah the, the guy yeah yeah uh, this yeah. almost shamanic character really yeah uh, who we'd grown up sort of putting on, on a platform you know so he stayed at my house for like a long weekend and we took him to a rave in uh, <laughs> Manchester kind of thing in this like it was a bit of a it um, wasn't a big rave but it was in this building that like we knew, yeah, something. it was it, it was yeah. off, off grid kind of rave, yeah, you know. Yeah, sure. And yeah. somehow the whole he managed to get the whole rave. He was stood on a table in the middle of this, and the whole rave was like in a fucking circle around him. He had powers, you know. What I mean? yeah. <laughs> and then all weekend, it's like people turning up at the house who who come come down from the hills yeah, to to have an audience, and, and yeah, yeah he was, it was like such a powerful figure, wow. you know. And uh, yeah, uh, that was pretty amazing. Well, you know, that's the, sh- the stuff that used to my weird life crisscrossing with sort of weird gong people, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, Graham was right in there. In in that, uh, you know, he could he could match anyone kind of intellectually, kind of thing, or and, was... um, and hold his musicality and. Yeah. He's such yeah. a good player now, kind of thing, you yeah, know, because he's dedicated. Uh, he's just set out to be a jazz violinist. So like, who does that? You know. <laughs> There's a guy called John Garner who's up in Newcastle, and yeah. they're very similar characters. John, yeah, is much younger. John is a phenomenal reader. Yeah, I mean, he's like he's very intelligent. He's very quiet. Mm. like razor sharp he's got all the same he's yeah. like he's just got this same obviously a different person and different what a different journey but this weird this kind of connection between yeah and, and, you know, and ev- everywhere they go they meet the other people somehow they <laughs> tune into people, a frequency you were, you were saying about the pj belting and you mentioned milo fell milo fell yeah and john thorne we've already mentioned yeah, you know yeah. what i mean and he made a record called uh, isthmus That's with right. with milo a, and yeah. john and uh, both great yeah. improvising folk. Yeah, it's like a, a improvised really. record. I, yeah, yeah. I made the cover for that when I first got Photoshop. <laughs> that that period yeah. when you went Photoshop mad and yeah, know. of course, yeah, yeah, yeah And yeah, uh, yeah it's a really, it's ninety five uh, that record or something. Yes, ninety six. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I've seen them play at Manchester Jazz Festival, and it's like, yeah, that's a good combo. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had that vibe, and then Milo moved away, didn't he? Which was, I think, was all. I mean, and I, and I started playing a bit more with Graham after Milo, yeah. with John and and Richard Weatherall, different people, and it was great. I always felt very privileged, yeah. to because the thing with Graham was, I remember meeting him. In, I can still see now me sat in the end of Nine Day in the window talking to him, mm. and then the next time I went to Nine Day. I went to this night which had different things on and the headline band was this band called I think it was called Toolshed then it was just you two oh right okay and, and you had yeah. 
and it would, I mean, I was completely mesmerised by ev- everything was completely baffling, but yet yeah, it felt familiar. You had like an Atari 1024, yeah. whatever it was, yeah. and it had this screen with all these things all muted. Yeah, it'd be Cubase. Yeah, it was Cubase, yeah. like Steinberg Pro 24 or whatever yeah. it was, you know, early, early days, and you had all these keyboards, and you had you, you had... Graham had guitar and a violin, and you had guitar and saxes and saxes and and all this stuff. And this music started, and you were like unmuting these loops, mm. these amazing samples and things off. I don't know whether they were off Sam- Moog or I don't yeah, know. Yeah, there was the samplers was and was it, like what, yeah, there was a mini, yeah, mini Moog. One thousand? Did you did you have like an early yeah. S one? Yeah, yeah, and it was and so the. This was, I mean, like when I worked with Jamie O'Dell, when Jibster ah, came yeah. together in yeah. 97, yeah. 97 ish, you know, he, I was kind of, because of that thing, I was kind of primed for yeah. this feels like I'm involved in something that was like that. That yeah, was yeah. one of the most. I think that's where I first saw you play in Jim, Jimster. They did uh, like an outdoor gig. In Stevenson Square. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And right. they used to have a Northern Quarter Festival that's every year, right. didn't yeah, they? Yeah. yeah. I had a weird. I practice pad drum kit. I had the triggers and everything. I had the snare. Drum yeah, because it was a, like a, <laughs> a electronic element in it. That's right. But yeah. obviously with this jazz. Um, Jazzy vibe. Yeah. Yeah, and Jamie was pretty handy on the keyboards. He was a keyboard yeah. player, yeah, still yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it was like, oh, this is cool. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, the bass, like, the, I mean, I always tell my, my students always talk about drum bass now. And I yeah. just sit there and go, yeah, you know. So yeah. I said, well, back in 97, they go, yeah. I said, I used to have this thing on the bass drum, it was like a trigger. And every time he played it, it triggered a loop that was, that was the length of it, right, but yeah. it was monophonic. So every time, yeah. he, I could just do whatever I wanted yeah. and then I could mimic in the hands so you had this kind of reinforced <coughs> hand and a bit of a subdivisional thing that was helpful and I could sort of dick about with the yeah. hi-hat and the snare drum you know because I was dicking around so trying to play all these fancy pants things you yeah. know? and they had a ride cymbal and then these three at the time these three Remo practice pads all had triggers and Jamie had all the stuff in the S1000 they had to load every tune you know yeah. on the floppies between yeah. each one yeah. and it evolved in by 99 when we did the, the album into Connect I think that's the name of the yeah. album we, would do, we did the whole album live and we had click in one ear and the samples in the other and that was, that was me yeah. And Jamie had the same thing. Roger and Sheen were just... So Roger Wickham, in Roger Wickham. Wow. Yeah. Pre-Chip Wickham. Yeah. Yeah, when he was Roger. Um, and uh, Sheen Towers was the bass player. Remember yeah. Sheen? I don't know if you remember Sheen. No, he I don't. He was know. always around Sheen, yeah. around that scene. Oh, yeah. Now you know, he say He was yeah. a martial artist. Yeah. He was a Tai Chi guy. And, right. And he was great. He's great bass. I don't know if he still plays bass. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But uh, that, was the, that was the quartet. Yeah. And me and Roger and Jamie played jazz in little bars in South Manchester mm. like a cafe cafe um, what was it called the cafe thingy in Fallowfield is not there anymore oh yeah uh, cafe I can't, the name of it's gone out of my head but everybody yeah but it was, a, it was a bit of a jazz it was a jazz uh, thing John you could Ford get a gig there, there. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah. Nine, you got nine quid you yeah. know it was one of those but I used to live just down the road and Chris Brown was the bass player Steve Brown the, the, of Steve Brown fame the English jazz drummer it was his brother played bass oh, right. And we had the band called Una Mass that we did all the kind of, we did all that, um, 
like West Coast Bob James kind of Westchester oh, right. Lady yeah, all yeah. that kind of stuff you yeah. know covers of, and New York and Soul kind of stuff and, yeah because Roger was really into that he's Roger's no I'd seen him last year uh, yeah, doing his own gig kind doing of thing. his own thing and yeah, yeah, yeah. he's really got he's really got that stuff yeah. in his veins hasn't he you know what I mean yeah, really Tubby Hayes kind of stuff yeah, as well uh, yeah and uh, you know amazing flute and stuff but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's it's it's great that he's now in the racks. Yeah, in, in the, you know in the is 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 established. Isn't he? He's, he did the Royal Albert all it like last year, didn't he? He did, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I mean, because he's done Matt Halsall obviously for a while. Yeah, that that thing. But Rogers, yeah, Chip Wickham. He's kind of he's kind of he's really it's feisty. You know, yeah. Yeah, Great yeah. band as well, you know, vi- vibraphone in it, and that's right. Yeah. It's uh, Ralph Wild, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, was, I was, uh, yeah, it was really good, good to see him because he's living out in the Middle East somewhere now, I think, isn't he? Because his, yeah, his uh, wife got Susanna's a job. Susanna's got a job yeah. in uh, Doha, yeah. yeah. So they, she's she's running that music department, in the, and they've got still got a house in Madrid. Yeah. So they go between, and their kids like I think his daughter came to Leeds Conservatoire to do songwriting. Ah, yeah, cool. she, she, yeah, I think she might even still be, she might graduate now, yeah. but I didn't really, I never really met her, uh, really. But, but uh, Rod, Roger, we did, when we did Toolshed, yes. Toolshed go up to a 28-piece band did, at yeah. one for point. Channel, for it? Channel 4, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, we did two things at Contact, I think one of them was filmed for that um, Session 70... Session 72, 72 yeah. Session 72, that's the And thing, yeah. uh, Roger was in... Both those he was, yeah, uh, yeah. versions Marla of James the big band. With, yeah, and uh, yeah, we had uh, a sax section, a trombone section, yeah. multiple guitars, Danny and all the other. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was that was uh, kind of the early peak of it because like Toolshed yeah. actually wasn't a band uh, to start with. It was a night. That's so. This is the thing I was yeah. confused by when I went. To they that asked like night and day. There was this girl, uh, Raki Kumar. That's right. And and she wanted to put on a techno night. Okay, I remember. And her. she was like, yeah, "Oh, yeah. Could, you know, come and DJ at this. You know, will yeah, you yeah. will you host it? You know, yeah. Being a known techno person, and I I just bent it to my needs, which was like to write stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and then get and then get musicians <laughs> to interact because there was a whole culture down. It come from that thing where bongo players played with DJs in the beef right. kind of thing, yeah, yeah. and that and actually was yeah. it spread right down Oldham Street at one point where yeah. um, people would. DJing and musicians might join in, be it a drummer. I remember Phil Phil Kirby, who yeah, uh, we'll talk about Phil because yeah, he's will, an important yeah. character. He is, yeah. I used uh, to do that collider. I yeah, used to do that with uh, Chubby Grooves and with the other guys. Yeah, it was all part of that Fat City thing in Manchester, and uh, people would turn up and play. Yeah, and um, from that, from doing, uh, taking that idea but pushing it a little bit my way um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was restarted replaying with Paddy Steer who was yeah. in a group called Yago but he was in Biting Tongues as well tongues, with yeah. Phil Kirby with Phil. Yeah, they, yeah. there was a point where Yago and Biting Tongues were one person Basically different same band. we yeah, rehearsed yeah. in the same place yeah. well they got a record contract and that that kind of nosedive Biting Tongues into <coughs> there's one album that I made that was all 
synthesizers and drum machines uh, as a last ditch attempt before at the same time was doing 808 you do 808 then yeah, yeah, yeah. well it's quite an interesting record but um yeah paddy steer was in this band called lion rock they had they had a hit with uh, justin robertson the lion dj oh. roger lyons who's this amazing synthesis technician guy and mandy wigby who have been in bands with and uh, they they were a band at the time, but I was robbing Paddy to come and do. Uh, we were vibing at playing again together. Yeah, yeah. And then at PJ Bells or whatever it was, Collider. Collider was. I yeah. did. Uh, I took my mini move down to one of these DJ jams one night okay. and met James Ford, who was drumming. James, yeah, I was going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, so yeah we've got to talk about James. Dickie Harrison, and James. Yeah, and, so, yeah, so, uh, uh, very, so I had, <laughs> I had James. Yeah. Uh, to drum sometimes Richard Harrison, who yeah, we go yeah. back to the New Hormones records in the seventies, and he's, oh, he's yeah. left-handed drumming yeah, yeah. kind of got his very much his own style free real free probably yeah free player, yeah, yeah. yeah and he, he's yeah. really involved in the manchester free improv kind of thing yeah, he is. I know he's, a, uh, he's yeah, still he's really still active doing yeah, that yeah. he's plays in a band called the space heads that's space a duo heads. with andy diagram who plays yeah. in the band james and was uh, in they were both in dislocation dance which were an 80s band so all these Venn diagrams of people, it just seemed like a time where it's like, oh, no, let's do this, you know, let's let's yeah. just yeah. turn up and try things, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. any any we did it once a month, and anything might happen, you know. Anything, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, depending yeah, yeah. on who was around, you know. Yeah. Can you yeah. remember the first time you did it? No, but the the thing that 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 night when you and Graham were playing, yeah, I I in my head. I, I, all I said was I want to play with these guys ah, with yeah. this music yeah. I didn't know what it I, I was completely yeah. Graham was playing I remember him playing these guitar chords with a volume pedal yeah. and this these grooves and stuff were going on and these chords were like Averhard it was all the ECM yeah. sound and that, um, absolutely aesthetic. coming from a different direction that was yeah. where my head was because I was you know I was listening to a lot of, I was obsessed with Jarrett or Jack Jeanette yeah. and that kind of and then eventually something happened. I don't know when it was. I can't, I was really trying to wrap my brains today of when did I end up playing with, with you and Paddy and James? Because James was definitely... Richard wasn't so involved when I first got involved. Yeah. And then Richard came. And then there was a point, there was a real sweet spot. We were some three of us. Yeah. And you <laughs> with your... <laughs> incredible all these loops and like yeah because let, let's explain there was already like four layers of drums <laughs> in the, the loops you know well this and so this is a story i tell my students yeah. and i'll i'll tell it now and i'll share this with you and you might even remember yeah. we we used to occasionally be very blessed with the presence of mikey wilson oh. completely, yeah. <laughs> legend <laughs> absolute legend and and I always remember we did this rehearsal at Juicy House when you used to have the room up there. Yeah. And you said, oh, can you come over? We're going to do a thing. Mikey, we've got this gig. I think it was like a New Year band. I can't remember. It was me and Mikey and just you. Yeah. It was Graham, you and 
was you and Paddy and Graham was guesting, and yeah. and C Ming was singing. Yeah. Um, C Ming Toe. Yeah. C Ming Toe. Yeah. And uh, who I worked with recently with Arun actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, she's amazing that artist. Yeah. And thing. Yeah. yeah, she was. I, I just did a couple of depths on that show, but yeah. C Ming Toe, she was one of the singers. It was yeah. brilliant. And it was so great to see. It hasn't changed a bit, you know. Yeah. Amazing, just kind of like crystallizing yeah, time, you know. Beautiful inside and out. So. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it just has this thing of never, yeah. just has never changed in all the time. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's similar to yourself. Actually, a lot of people actually, as musicians, seem to have this youthful vibe about them. Yeah. But um, yeah, so there was this kind of. Um, I've lost the thread of what I was saying. You're, you're saying like we got together for a year. Oh yeah, we got to, yeah. So so you said oh we just need to. You want to come down to this thing because because Mikey's recording with um, with Andy uh, Lamb Andy Andy Lamb yeah because uh, they had a studio upstairs didn't yeah they? and he said you said oh you just could do with was all getting together because Mikey's gonna guess he's gonna because Pat had gone to London by this point he was still doing home life wasn't he but he wasn't yeah. doing Toolshed anymore because yeah. we did we did that together didn't we me and Pat yeah this is uh, Pat Alingworth yeah, who, yeah. who's a uh, long-standing drummer with the James Taylor Quartet that's right yeah, yeah yeah but he was a he was a Manchester he was a Manchester drummer he, he was a North yeah. I lived in Southlands he was a North man he was the yeah. Presswich Brigade yeah. you know yeah. and that was a different like the Tim France and all that or Richard Isles they were a slightly yeah. different scene but I would look it was great because obviously you know Pat was a drum we did lots of similar gigs and then Pat ended up doing Tool Shed which was great when James yeah. left because he, yeah. he became producer but Jones. also you know all this panoply of drummers like yeah. Mike, Mikey Will, like we yes. just mentioned Mikey Wilson yeah um, we mentioned uh, Pat Illingworth yeah. Uh, James Ford yeah. and yourself of yeah. all drums with 808 State that's correct yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which I was going to mention later yeah, yeah. I was very honoured to do one gig which was very special yeah because it was uh, you know Manchester, Manchester versus Cancer, cancer. Uh, the First arena one. it was a big arena gig wasn't I, it I yeah. remember yeah, yeah, we yeah. Like going up behind the drums you know and yeah. like oh shit this is like mega yeah, like I could just do this forever, you know. And um, it it um, was uh, we got I've got some photos yeah. that Mick Rock took for the occasion. Yeah, yeah, and you and yeah. you when he when he passed away, you shared those. Uh, yeah, and I I've still got that picture that one of us in that room. A gang yeah. shot. Yeah. I mean, I, Mick, that was so funny though. Was when he came and he was doing all those pictures. Yeah. And um, the only rhyme that bites, we did that, didn't we? Yeah, with MC tunes. With MC tunes, yeah. and you you had to go to his house to try and find him or something and he, and he was we had, the, well we had to slow it down as well because like the 18 year old MC tunes could do it at, like you know it was, 160 it was, but like yeah, they went yeah, to get yeah. it down to about 150 is it the big country sample on that obviously? yeah yeah that's right it's great yeah. so I can, that whole the vibe of it and I remember it's a bonkers drum. record it's bonkers drumming on it's it, bonkers you know? the whole yeah. well this is so this is the whole thing about um so just to go back to the Mikey thing, because it's all yeah. this is the this crystallizes it all actually. What exactly what you just said in the Mikey thing? Because this was one of the moments. I, I mean, I've always thought Mikey's a genius. Mm. Full stop. He's definitely out on some kind of spectrum. Aura. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got this thing photographic. He's got like a photographic audible ability to hear something and replicate it in a bizarre, creepy. And we did this rehearsal. You said, "Can you? Can you come?" I said, "Yeah, I'll come in." And yeah. I hadn't seen Mikey for a long time because he'd been on tour with Texas for about eighteen months. Yeah, I talk about a sledgehammer to crack an acorn. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. <laughs> I can, you, that'd send him mad. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you've Balance, got, I think you've got on well with you, Charlene. So yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, no, yeah, no, I don't mean well, to slag him off, but, you know, Mikey is uh, well, best stopped. used in fiery, sort of he's, funky he's jazz. He's an inspirational yeah, yeah. character. He brings a thing to music and situations which I've never, I've rarely seen in, in all my time. Yeah. And I've seen him play with, like, little in little bars with Mike Walker and just seen him play one thing for ten minutes. Yeah. And it was as captivating as the crazy... And talking to Sylvan Richardson about when they used to play together in Sylvan. Oh, they were a double act. Yeah, they were a double act. Tony Bowery. Yeah. That we we did a, a a mad uh, charity thing. It was something to do with Kosovo, and uh, we did the entire um, "What's Going On" album, Marvin Gaye thing, as a sort of weird Manchester collective thing. Right. And it had Sylvan on bass and Mikey on drums and Joe Roberts and Melanie Williams and. And uh, I was trying to think who else. Yeah, it was quite a big orchestra of people kind of thing. I, I was playing uh, synths in it. And, uh, and Mikey and Sylvan are just like this. I mean, I think, did they come up through churchy stuff together? They, they yeah, it's a, it's a history. It's, it's, it's weird with the churches in Manchester. There was like, uh, we had this singer. There was this guy, Bar- Barrington Stewart, who... who I met while I was working at Spirit Studios uh, when I was training to be a sound engineer. Yeah, because you did that. Uh, yeah, and I did a record with him. We did like some electro Barry White record with him singing it. And then on the B side, there's Denise Johnson singing it. And it, it was kind of like a, a college project that I did kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when Barry died, Barry was in 808 State. Uh, we went around... Uh, for a period, we did an American tour, and we did. Uh, how long was he in? The, how long was he in the band for? It's probably about a year and a half year, or something. Right, yeah, okay. uh, alongside Rachel McFarlane. Do you know Rachel McFarlane? Uh, like, people might know her because she's been in West End musicals yeah, and all this kind of thing. She was like she was like sixteen when she was in our band. Right. When when wow. we first did a record, we did a record called 10, 10 Times Ten. And uh, our sound engineer Pablo, he he, he was mentoring them. Pablo, yeah, yeah. yeah, he was kind of mentoring them, and then like you know, right. so when we were doing sound checks all around America, they got about an hour's worth of his attention, and we got about forty-five, you know, <laughs> you know half half an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. He, he really nurtured them and yeah. uh, as singers, but it all came into focus when Bar- Barrington died. Uh, maybe 10 years ago now and we all went, went me and Andrew Barker went to his funeral uh, in this church in Wally Range and the musician gathering for that oh, right. was all these uh, musicians that come up through this one coach as it were one uh, guy who mentored them you know yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was all the Manchester musicians that you might have played with uh, uh, yeah. you know a big bunch of them yeah. all the singers yeah. Yeah. and all these there was like all these singers that have been on all these rave records you know yeah. people that had, yeah. uh, you know sang on Moby record Diane Charlemagne Diane sang Charlemagne. on Inner City yeah. Life and, yeah. uh, and there was this whole set of people that had come through church music you know yeah 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 and uh, yeah it was a bit of a, it was just a little moment where you're going oh yeah of course of course, of course it all yeah. makes sense yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, and it was like one of the best gigs I've ever been to 
Barry's funeral. Oh, but it was. Yeah. <laughs> it was so so emotional and yeah. Kind of, yeah. Uh, well, that's the thing. With, the thing with Mikey it always felt like there was a connection to something that is that thing. The source, yeah, he's he's know. from that that set of yeah. musicians. Yeah, uh, and it's just somewhere else. There's, yeah, there's a magic yeah. ingredient. And he's and he's and he's <clears throat> even now he's still very connected to this city. There was because Mikey had all these opportunities to go and do. I mean, I think that there's a story that Herbie Hancock asked him to join his band. You know, oh, when he, when he was doing, yeah, because yeah, he was in LA when they were doing the yeah. Jazz Warriors and he was involved yeah. in all that project. Yeah, was Herbie, it the Jazz Defectors? Jazz, he was in. Sorry, Jazz Defectors. Yeah, not Jazz. Jazz Warriors yeah. was a London thing. Yeah, which Max Beasley played. Yeah, in, another Chetham's. Uh, he was. He yeah, still speaks. Chetham student. Uh, he is the yeah, same year we lived in London. He was a percussionist, yeah. wasn't he? He was a percussionist, and then he, he also liked to. Even then, he liked to act. Yeah. Because he did, you know, in the school when we did the school production, like yeah. you know, Gilbert and Sullivan, or whatever. Yeah. He did the singing and acting. Right, he, yeah. he didn't play. I was uh, playing Kit, and he'd be singing. Yeah, for all the youngsters out there, he became a. a uh, famous actor, didn't he? He, he is, yes. Yeah. He still oh, he still is. What, what was he? What was he? Well, that Tom Jones, eventually oh, Tom yeah. Jones broke the TV him. Thing. He did that film with Mariah Carey called Glitter. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, that was the film. But he was a bona fide Hollywood dude who used to play percussion in Manchester Bar. Yeah, that's right. And he, and he, and did he play with Omar for a bit? Yeah, he played yeah. Omar's band. Yeah. When, when Omar broke, he did a thing yeah. at Mama Smith Odeon and Misha Paris guested. That's where they, that's where him and Misha met because they yeah. were together for a while. Ah, and he was okay. with Mel B for a while. Right. And now he's married, he's got two girls now and he lives in Mulholland Drive in yeah. LA. He's lived there for 18, 16, yeah. 18 years, 20 years nearly. Yeah. Another character just came into my mind that yeah. you introduced me to, I think, was Steve Brown, the, the piano player. Yeah, who's, uh, who's married to uh, Corinne now. Yeah, yeah Corinne yeah. Bailey Ray's Ray. uh, right. yeah, yeah. Well, Steve, yeah, yeah. Well, Steve, Steve. Stuart McCallum's. Yeah, yeah. That's how I met Steve, through Stuart. Oh, right, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. But he was constantly out doing the um, Oldham Street stuff and always yeah. playing organ playing left hand bass and Hammond and playing piano and Rhodes yeah. and, and a super nice guy very mellow yeah a super mellow kind yeah, of yeah one of those really um, lovely lovely guys too. Yeah. yeah so there was a period where he was uh, in, in the tool yeah. shed for a little bit kind of thing but bringing such you know, I, I feel really, I, I wouldn't call it imposter syndrome, but, you know, I've been no. able to, because I've had some kind of pop career or whatever, I've been able to get uh, to m- meld with these connections, you know, yeah. through, through yeah. people I've met and kind of thing. And yeah. sometimes I'm just like, wow, this is, you know, just like a kid in a sweet shop going, like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Well, this guy, that guy. Just, you know, you're talking about all these stories, but it's that connection thing about the city and all these different scenes, you know. Yeah. And uh, but I, I, I've got to get to this crystallized thing. I've got to get to the end of this story. Yeah, sorry, because we're getting. No, it, it's just like this. When is I'm when I'm talking on my own, when I, when I do the yeah. podcast on my, I yeah. sit on my own do all the time. Yeah. yeah. The tangents are just. I have yeah. to try. I have to pause to try and go. Where was it? What was it? I have to go yeah. back twenty minutes and go? Oh, I was talking about that, you yeah. know. And go anyway. Uh, I'm just coming back to the topic. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's that all the time. Yeah. But um, Mikey came down. He was recording with Andy, 
and he'd been on tour and there was me, you and Paddy yeah. and there was two drum kits I yeah. think that drum kit in there was one yeah alright yeah. and I, I, in fact, I brought, in fact I brought my bass drum and a snare drum yeah. and I was playing my thing and I was just sort of playing these and Mikey he came into the room and he was like what's your, what's your hair great you know Mikey and it was all great and then he mm. sat down behind this drum kit and he started hitting this drum kit and he kept he was going this is the vibe this is the vibe <laughs> and me you and Paddy were like staring at him and he started playing this thing and it was like <laughs> what the hell is going on? It was incredible. And then he went, oh, sorry, guys. Anyway, and yeah. then you played him this loop. Mm. Uh, I think it was an Al Foster thing mm. that you'd sampled. And I'd been trying to play this bloody thing for, like, five years. You know, yeah. I still couldn't play it. Yeah. You know, you, you, I mean, what... So there's just a bit of background. I mean, the, the drums, there was these amazing stuff that you'd created these layers of rhythms mm. and you go oh this is the vibe yeah and I'd go fucking what the <laughs> what is that how am I ever going to play show, go, show me a hole <laughs> yeah yeah that was the and, but, but there'd be James there'd be me and then there was Pat and then there was Dickie Richard yeah. you know uh, as well so we had these three drummers or two drummers so I'd say to James can you I'll take care of you know, and on some things I'd just do my thing anyway, mm. and James would do his thing, mm. and and the samples would be, would be the the other thing. So it wasn't always about replication, was it? It was no. about bringing a vibe. But some things, you know, the the they required to to be in the thing yeah. in order to survive, <laughs> because <laughs> the the wall of sound of this band was incredible. You know, yeah. it was a serious thing. The the sound was like nothing I've ever been involved in before or since, you know. Mm. And it was to be inside that sound and playing it was like a, an amazing experience. Every mm. time we gigged, wherever the venues were. Yeah. I mean, a friend of mine came to watch us once, a drummer called Elliot Henshaw, he's a, he's a, he's a show, he plays a lot of shows and straight ahead and reader. And he, he came up to me after the gig after the Contact Theatre, he came to one of those gigs we did. And he came up to me after the gig and he was shaking his head. He said, what? I don't understand what any of that was. I don't, where? He was like, he said, where'd you begin? How'd you begin? How'd you even begin with what? How did you know what to play? He just couldn't get his head around anyone. And I said, well, you know, it's been a long... But the thing with Mikey was, you played it in this loop and you listened to it and he played it back and it was exactly the same. Wow. And I was like, that's frightening, you know? Yeah, and he, he was obviously, at that time, been on tour for a long time. So he was on an A game, probably physically. Yeah. Because I think that, because that thing, when you when you play big rooms a lot, it, it does, for as a drummer, I don't know what it's like on other instruments, I don't have any experience of that, but as a drummer, you get a physicality thing where yeah. you're projecting to the unprojectable, really. I mean, there's a lot of famous videos of Vinnie Colliuta in, in, in 2000. Mm. The, the stuff recorded in LA on cameras like this, you know, yeah. the, the bootleggy things. And he'd finished Sting and he was, I mean, he looked physically strong. Yeah. His playing was of another solar system. It was like nobody was playing like that at that time. This is pre social media. And yeah, and I sometimes wonder whether that containment of being in the discipline of somebody's pop music or whatever. Yeah. For a players like that yeah. that when they come out of them situations 
into a place where they yeah, can yeah. Uh, let rip. It really, know? really helped me when yeah. I've done those things. I, I felt, I mean, I did this, we did this tour with Tom McRae in 2010. It was, we did 40, did like 40 gigs, you know. Yeah. We were, it was 37 gigs. We were away for like two months. And when I came home, I did a jazz gig about, about a week after it. I think maybe it was Steve Berry. And I was playing, and I and I remember feeling strong, really strong. Yeah. Like I could play so quietly because I was yeah. so strong, and it was a real learning curve of like strength is not about playing loud; it's about being able to play quiet. Yeah. And I sort of knew that conceptually, but it, it was it sort of it, it skewed my kind of view of certain physicality things on the drums. Yeah. And Steve at the end of the gig said, I "Don't know what you've been doing when you've been away, but it sounds like you've been taking care of the thing of playing like yeah. this." And I was like. I didn't play any jazz. I've not played jazz for three months. I've been right. playing the same thing every night in big rooms. Just and Tom just said, just play the same thing every night. Don't be getting into any fancy pants. Yeah, you know, just play the same thing. Yeah. But but the thing like the thing that Mikey did was that was that I saw that that thing was a possibility. You know, at that time, like somebody can come along and listen to your drum programming. So, because there's, I mean, I never really asked you at the time about exactly what you were doing, but some things were like, sound like they were programmed and some things sounded like they were loops. Yeah. And obviously there's the whole technology side of it, which you were really on top of. And obviously it had evolved all the way through from those, from the yeah. late seventies and that technology, obviously it sounded to me like, well, you're always somebody that I thought of as having, you know, being on the front side of that. You know, not someone going, oh, I'm going to get into a retro thing technology-wise. It's like you sort of evolved a sound. I mean, like when I, I wanted, I wanted uh, an Atari when I was, when I was in, in 1991, I used to have this sequencer. It was, um, it, I, had a, I had a D20 keyboard, which had a 16-channel sequencer. It had a very small amount of memory. And yeah, was, weird, them things. I've got one of those things that in the cellar kind of thing. Like it more. Uh, no, it's a it's a W thirty or something like a workstation. That's it's it's basically the, the keyboard yeah. the prodigy made all their stuff on. You know that's what I mean? Right, yeah. And it's like yeah, that's so kind of uh, you have to think in a different way. You know, workstations. Workstation yeah, yeah. thing. That was a lot. A lot of the raved dudes had those Ensonics. You remember the Ensonics, yeah, which were workstations, and they like Damsky had one them. Yeah, yeah the Ensonics. Yeah, they sound. had a the filters had a certain sound they, they were did. quite aggressive kind of yeah yeah um, we worked with a band called K Class they, they, they had one we did all their early stuff and, yeah. yeah 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 no was, there was a guy I, li- I lived in his house in when I first moved out of when I moved away from Glossop went to live in Bredbury in this house and it was Clive Stewart and Clive the sax player and there was they had a little studio in his house and this guitarist called Alan Unsworth his name was Alan, his real name was Alan Clare he used Unsworth for tax reasons you know okay. and he was an Alan Holdsworth like freak like he he, he wow. knew all the Alan Holdsworth and he wow. could play like that he played that, that style that's a lifetime's dedication unbelievable yeah and he was a very good friend of John Abercrombie and oh, he wow. knew quite a lot of people yeah. you know, and he was a no nobody guy this guy yeah. and he had an insonic keyboard and it had these, I remember writing on it, and it had this sound that I've never found since, this kind of paddy, ethereal, yeah. and it had like, it was a fil- there was something about the way it filtered and the way it kind of legato to, mm. 
and, and, and I'm, I wrote this whole string thing, but I've never been able to use it since yeah. because I can't find that sound, you know, right. because it was written into the computer using that yeah. and then either kind of recording it, it wasn't very well recorded. And, but I've still got the MIDI file, I've still got it now, you know, I've got it on my logic. It's yeah. this, I can, I, and I've loaded it in and it's like, yeah, it just doesn't sound. Yeah, I've, I've, I've gone crazy trying to find, going, trying to get back to the source of particular sounds and yeah, things. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I've yeah. just uh, recently re bought a keyboard called the uh, Krumar Bit One. And it was like, <laughs> right. it's in a lot of the 808 bang, rave bangers. Because okay. it's got this kind of clanky edge to it that is something to do with um, uh, the digital oscillators versus the analog filter with the Curtis chips. Like Bob Moog had got involved with this Italian company and done the semi-design this thing, but it had such a de definite sound to it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I've avoided getting one for years. I, I got it. Rob got robbed from Phil Kirby's when one, right. on many occasions. Phil's studio got robbed. Yeah, yeah. And uh, mm. anyway, I finally succumbed because I was like, oh, I need that sound. You know, I yeah, need that exact yeah, sound. Yeah. And yeah. it came from eBay, and I turned it on, and there it was, and it's like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, and it's yeah. like, it's it's silly in a way because you could live without it. But on the other hand, you just get obsessed with these things, don't you? you I, I got that sound. There's magic in them the, this, particular things. There is something. That, I mean, and I'm sometimes gonna... it's to do with the outputs on it. You know, you, cause right. the, you, know, you can get a software version, but it ain't the thing, you know, because it's, it's yeah, how the electronics yeah. work and the yeah. output of the thing. And... Well, I remember you saying to me once, we were at Bow on the Wall and you had your Mac, because you, you were an early adopter of the plugins, like the yeah. virtual synths thing. Yeah. You were the first person I knew that was using a Moog, and, you had, and you've got Moogs here, haven't you? Yeah, you my know? big chunky old laptop. Yeah, is, yeah, then you were like, and you said, well, this, he said, you were like saying, this is pretty good. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's... It'll and do it, in, a, in, it, a, in a nightclub. Yeah, and, and if you're carrying it around, just that yeah. thing of, it's all in here, and I was quite, I was like, Wow, that's like a really endorsement of where they must have got to at that point for yeah. you to go. Oh, I don't need to take this out anymore. Yeah. Actually, it's a bit fragile. I mean, you should have seen like even me and Graham. We used to go and do this place in Stoke called the Wheat Sheaf. Uh, the Wheat Sheaf was was that that was the, wasn't that the oh no it was the light how was the covers venue in Stoke wasn't it there was one oh is it it was like some mad club in Stoke yeah they, no and a, Graham always used to get us a gig through this guy yeah yeah and yeah, uh, yeah. we we go there and fill we had an eight oh eight the eight oh eight transit van and we'd just fill it well we had like vibraphones and yeah, like, yeah, it was yeah. like you know the back of Umagumma by Pink Floyd it was like that Kennedy wow, it was wow. just me and him you know yeah yeah and yeah, uh, yeah. you know and I had to cut all I had to cut that down you know yeah. do you want to just put it on pause or something? break yeah cool there you go that's um, the first ugh, what's that two hours about two hours yeah of the interview so there's another hour and 10 two sorry two hours 10 ish coming next uh, in, uh next month yeah on the 7th as I, as I said at the beginning in january so thanks again for listening really appreciate it hope you enjoyed that um please come back and listen to the second part of it it's so interesting there's some really great other great things he talks about in the second part and uh have a great um holiday uh, however you celebrate that whatever you do hopefully uh yeah, chill out and um, I'll be back again in the new year. So thanks a lot and bye for now.